going, everybody? Welcome to the uh, inaugural episode of Brewster's Billions. We have Ignore Narrative with us. A couple disclaimers that are important to get out of the way. Ignore Narrative is also known as Mike Mitchell. I refer to him as his uh, Twitter handle. First of all, neither of us are your financial advisor. This is not financial advice. It's not investment advice. We are two people that are interested in how people look at investments. Do not come here for financial anything. That is uh, the best thing that I can tell you. Do your own work. This is for entertainment purposes only. A peek into one man's mind that I respect a lot. So, Mike, how you doing? I do well. I just added that. I'm not sure you want my financial advice anyway. So I'm not <laughs> sure what to help you. Yeah. Uh, it depends on the day, I guess. Something that is kind of funny is I think a lot of people are going to say like, oh, great. These two are talking. They're clearly going to talk QVC. So what I would tell people is if you don't think you want to own a business like QVC, that's a pretty good indication that maybe you don't want to follow us. <laughs> I guess that's right. What better way to get through and sort of weed out people who follow you? It's it's Throw out QVC is a, your best idea and see who runs away. My guess is a lot of people. <laughs> that's exactly right. So I guess it's a natural place to start. Why did you run to it since it's the reason that we know each other? And one of my favorite parts of it is I've gotten a friend out of you from the idea. So I'm already I'm up a ton just in friendships and communication. I've been following you for a while. I'm just not sure we would have connected really except for QVC. I would say too, just anybody who's listening, I should say Bill's the one who got me into this. So if, if it doesn't work, we're all, uh, we're all going after Bill. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> it's not mine. I don't want not that. Mine. I'm just here to support Bill. <laughs> Fair enough. I've got a long history with QVC. Oh, well, long. I mean, it starts in, in 2012. Before that, I, I only knew it as, as a channel. I didn't really know it as a business. A good friend of mine, actually, when it was Linta, pitched me on it. And the, the idea for the pitch was not to own QVC, really. It was to get involved before the Liberty Ventures spend as, as an event-driven hedge fund. And we love spends and splits and you know any, any opportunity for dislocations and disruptions, we got excited. So the problem I had with it was I didn't really like QVC as a business. I, and it, it wasn't because I had some view. It was just like, it's old women buying stuff on TV. How can that be an exciting business, right? And he said, no, actually, he's a very sharp guy. I think he'd be embarrassed if I called him out, but he's a very sharp guy. He said, actually, no, it's, it's really a better business than you think it was. You should give it a chance. So on his advice, and he's probably the best analyst I know, on his advice, I went through the numbers and the numbers at this time, and it really still were pretty phenomenal. I mean, returns on capital are good. Margins are good. Sales were consistently growing. So you, you kind of dig through and you're like, well, this actually, this screen's like a nice business, but I really want to get underneath it. I went to, every two years, they hold an investor day in Westchester, Pennsylvania. Of course, they were supposed to do it in 2020, but because of COVID, they did not. So in 2012, in May, I went to their investor day and it, it just sort of, it fell into place and the, the, for me. The insight on that was when I, not when I heard them present and I heard Mike George, who I really like, and of course, know the Liberty people who I really like. The insight was when I, when I walked through the studio. So they, they don't do them anymore, but they used to do studio tours and anybody could, you could buy a ticket to go, but they did it for analysts as well. We, of course, didn't pay. But what I saw I saw a, a, a line producer behind an unscripted television program and they were selling, I always give the example, they were selling sandals. And I saw a line producer with a dozen huge screens in front of them, one of which had the feed, one of which had you know the next the product lineup that was coming up for the day and maybe even for the week. And then they had this little graph that would show anytime a purchase was made, I believe online, and then also when people called in. And what the producer could do is 
they could see whatever the hosts were saying and how sales reacted based on what they said and what they showed. And, and then they could feed that information back to the hosts. And for me, a guy who had spent some time in retail before, which I'm sure you're going to want to talk about, it just like the light bulb went off of, oh my God, you know, they, they know exactly how well it's selling, what they can do to reposition their floor. And you think of a, a traditional retailer you have a, a, a big box, you dump a lot of crap into it, you hope it moves. And by the way, you're, you're getting this crap from China, right? So you hope it moves, you got 90 days. If it doesn't move, you just mark it down and get it out and then put a bunch more stuff in there. It's very merchandising dependent. When you look at QVC, they've got perfect information. So for me, it was just kind of like, oh my God. And by the way, you can change your floor. I mean, not to the day, but maybe to the week or the month. If you see shoes are selling or kitchen is selling and electronics are not, you can just it's, it's airtime, right? You could swap out the airtime for electronics. And so for me, I, I saw that and I was like, my God, these guys really know. And then, which I'm sure you're going to, want to talk about their, their best customers. When you start really peeling back the onion of people who shop there, they're almost fanatics would be the way I would say it. I mean, they are religious about shopping at QVC, which says, uh, in my mind, they're doing something right. And these customers, I believe their spend is like $1,300 a year. They buy something on average once a month and they're Attrition rate is tiny, so it's one or two percent a year. So, and that that accounts for a huge chunk of their business. I think it's almost seventy percent. So, when I looked through that, I thought, oh my god, I've discovered you know penicillin. This is a wonderful business, and nobody <laughs> you know nobody <laughs> understands it. You know, everybody hates it, and so it was my kind of thing. And I sort of pro forma that you could buy this thing for ten times earnings, looking through for ventures and everything else. And so I got really excited. We bought a bunch. And I, I followed it very closely. At one time, it was a huge position. So I, you know, rolling forward. I lived through mostly good times, one really bad time with them in the summer of 2016, uh, where sales just went completely off the rails and it was this massive, you know, eight or nine things went wrong at once and they started getting their business back on track. So 2012 happened, you do your underwriting, 2013, 2014, 2015, we're chugging along. 2016 comes and you own this in size. When mm-hmm. stuff starts to go wrong, especially on an entity that is a retailer, how do you think mm-hmm. through... Hey, is this thing broken? It, like, where do you draw the line between thesis creep and figuring out reality? And if you don't mind going through sort of your thought process on that, that'd be great. So it's a great question. And it's one that I don't think that there's a, a uniform, perfect answer. I think it depends on the situation every time. And it also kind of, this conversation bleeds into my personal process and why I, I feel very strongly that I have to know and trust and like the people that I give my money to. When I think about a management team, I don't think of a guy running a you know retailer or I think of a guy who's got not only all of my you know invested capital, but then all of my future invested capital. So everything my capital turns into, unless they're giving it back to me, I'm counting on that person to do the right thing. So my process is the number one thing I look for are people that I trust and that I like and that I think are rational and competent. If I don't check that box, it really doesn't, nothing else really matters. I mean, if that's not there, there are some instances that I invest in some things like liquidations, which I just, I love doing. You can't do that on any sort of scale, but uh, the returns are phenomenal. It doesn't matter because I'm getting all my money back. So as long as they're not crooks, then you know it's fine. But for a business where I'm investing capital and I'm expecting future earnings to be my you know returns, I need to make sure not only they can run their business, but that they're going to invest my capital well. So I start with the people, with Mike George and with Liberty, when 2016 hit, and that, and by the way, I learned that from Zale. That that was a, a key oh, takeaway from my experience at Zale, <laughs> which you, you're just the people matter. They matter a yeah. lot, actually. 
So with Mike, I had extreme confidence. And so what Mike would tell me is, look, we don't know for sure, but we have eight things we can point to that all just went wrong. And that happens. I guess, you know, forgive my French with this, but my kids aren't around so I can curse. Shit happens. Like it just does. That's that's part of life. I have yet to have an investment that even in hindsight, you look at it like, you know, we can talk about charter. Like, oh God, that's just amazing. It's like, I, I promise you, there were some times it was not amazing. Yeah. I mean, I, I sat through a meeting, my old firm, that all based on charters 40% drawdown in 2018. And the meeting started out, the stock's down 40%. You're wrong. Why do we own mm. this? I mean, that, that, and the whole meeting was about how charter was down. You know, it's, I guess for me, shit happens and I'm okay with that. I have a lot of tolerance for difficulty. But to your point, it does get to, well, how do you know in the right time that, how do you know when your thesis is wrong? Yeah. That's really the question. How do you know when you're, you were underwriting a business, they did something that you didn't expect. How do you know you're wrong? So the first thing I do is I go to the management team and I say, what happened? Am I wrong? And so what Mike George would say, and so I, I, you know, I saw him in New York a few times and I went to Westchester and I talked to Liberty about this. What Mike George would say is, no, we think we've got it. We think we figured it out. It was just a lot of bad things. I mean, they had a hair care product that had some issues and like some women were saying, their hair was falling out for goodness sake. And this was, it was a big driver of their beauty business at the time. So they say, well, that we had to pull that, you know, so, and we had, a, we were leaning into that. So they just had a lot of issues all at once. And so I, I hear Mike and I say, okay. And at that moment, when he tells me it's fine and I like Mike and we are going to get it back on track, then it's sort of an, okay, well now I have to watch this yeah. again, but I, I'm expecting it to be fine. And then sure enough, you know, it was, it was their two Q report in 2016 that, that was really brutal. And then you saw this just sort of steady climb. The thing about retail, which really sucks, is it's so merchandising dependent. Yep. You can't just walk in and make money. I mean, it's very competitive and merchandise matters. You have to really focus on it, which is going to be one of the things we talk about with why I'm back involved. But it's not something where you, if you take your eye off the ball, it's going to hurt. Like It's not something where you can fall. I, I think cable, you can kind of fall asleep at this point. It'll be okay. In retail, you know, you, you really have to watch it. It's a tough business, even for Q, which has customers that love them and are going to shut. You have to take care of them. You, you can't sleep. So I hear 2016. I hear what they're saying. The numbers are brutal. The stock is brutal. I basically, my decision, just give them the benefit of the doubt. And sure enough, it did start to improve. And it, it improved from 2016 through 2017. Even on the easy laps, it wasn't as good as I was hoping it would be. But it's fine as long as we're seeing improvement. And then you know, 2018, the numbers got better all up until the fourth quarter of 2018. And that's when the hammer really fell. I think it was February of 2019 when we got that report. And it, it went from a, you know, one to two to three percent grower, kind of like recovering off that 2016 level. And the business just took a dive. And I stuck around for the first report in February. It was their first quarter report where things continued to be rough. And what I was hearing them say, which I, I really appreciated, was, we don't really know what's going on. There's a lot of moving pieces, you know, but we don't really know. Yeah. At the moment, they said, we don't really know when there's a lot of moving pieces. I sold everything. Huh. You know? and, and it wasn't, a, it wasn't a, an indictment or a challenge on Q. It was a, okay, now it's, in my mind, it had changed. And it was pretty clear that I was wrong and that I'd expected this to recover I had expected it to get back to where it was. And it was pretty clear two quarters in that it just wasn't there. I didn't have confidence that if management couldn't tell me what the problems were and how they were going to fix it, that I couldn't have confidence to underwrite it. And that actually is going to get into another topic, which I like talking about, which is the never sell mentality. If you would have asked me in 2012 when I underwrote it, I would have said, yeah, it's just a never sell stock, right? It's going to 
it's 10% free cash flow, buying back a ton of stocks, it's a good business, never sell. Well, you know, in, in 2019, it became a sell stock, yeah. right? It, it, for me, it, the price isn't as important in the sell decision as it is, is your thesis correct or is your thesis wrong? And if your thesis is wrong, it almost doesn't even matter what the price is. You just have to sell. So, That's interesting. So I sold it. I, I sold. I forgot about it until uh, my, my friend Bill Brewster started publishing on Twitter about it, and he, he sucked me back in. <laughs> so That's got, a bad account got, to follow. I got, <laughs> yeah. I got, who would follow that guy? I don't know. Well, yeah, it's it's been interesting. I, I, I had not forgotten about it. I followed every quarter, including, you know, they just had the second quarter where you, you started posting about it. And I, I saw their capital action, and I thought, my God, you know, I can't believe I, I should have known that they were having a good quarter and, and not that I would have done anything, but I, I should have expected them business to be better now in, in a COVID time. And, and I, I thought I kicked myself because I know the business pretty well. And I thought I should have been on top of this. And I was too focused on Globa and the LBRDK deal. And I was focused on Formula One. And I just was had my eye off the ball on Q. And then it was it really was your tweet. I saw you post it. It's like QVC is ownable again. And I thought, you know what? He's exactly right. We should walk through that process again, see what's going on. And uh, when I did, I, I came to the conclusion that the story had changed. And that's, I mean, that's, we can get into that if you want to. We can stay away from it if uh, people are probably tuning you out no, now. No, no, I like it. I like it, <laughs> I see the podcast numbers dropping. No, no, that's fine. <laughs> I think people like this. So do you kick yourself at all for not buying in March, given how close you are to the name? No, because it's a use of capital and an opportunity cost conversation. So yes, QVC has, would have been a, the better performer of everything I bought, but you know, March was not an easy time to buy stocks. Dude, I mean, it, it, was it, it was just not easy. It was crazy. So, and in that moment, I, I've lived, that was the second one of those that I've lived through. I have a very specific plan when something like that happens. And it, it is, even though it doesn't necessarily feel right, and everybody says the answer is to buy the, the crap, you don't, don't buy quality, buy crap. I buy quality. And it's the reason why you talk about this a lot and you're right to do it. I don't think it gets discussed enough. When people tell me like, oh, it's you know, it's very easy. It's efficient allocation of capital. Simple. You just go find the thing that you think is going to have the best return, and you just buy it. In my mind, that's dead wrong. Absolutely incorrect. The number one thing you do is you figure out what you can mentally deal with. <laughs> yeah. Like what is going to keep you from not going insane yeah. is what you. And once you figure that out, you just stick to it. Like because if it goes against me and I own crap, in my mind, I'm going to kill myself and I'm going to sell it. By the way, probably at the bottom. I've watched so many, my, my former boss was so bad at this, just understanding this, his own psychology and what was going to make him crazy. Hmm. For me, if, if I own Charter at and I'm, I buy it at 400 and it goes to 300, I don't care. Yeah. You know, it doesn't. Yeah. I mean, uh, yes. Would I rather own it at 300? Sure. But if, if it's my best idea, I love it. I know it's not going away. Buy it at 400 and wait, it'll go, it'll go to 600. Yes. It's clearly better to buy it at three. But I didn't know at the time if, if 400 was going to 350 or 250 or 100. What I did know is I liked the price at 400 and I knew I could stomach it if 400 went to 200. Yeah. To me, is that's the key for every investor, regardless of what your strategy is or what you own. It's having the right psychology around what you own so that you don't get washed out when things get tough. When stocks are going straight up, it's, it's easy, right? It's not, it doesn't take any mental effort. It's when things really go against you. And I mean, go against you hard. That if you're not wrong about the business and you're not wrong about your thesis, you know it's it's really difficult to get these cues from the market telling you that you're dead wrong and not you know just emotionally cave. Most people do, I, and I think that's the I shouldn't say most people. No, they do. I would say. If, I mean, you can just look at studies. <laughs> yeah, if you make a mistake, you know it's it's like I'm willing to be wrong about my thesis, but I don't want the market and the price action to force me out of it if I'm not wrong. Yeah. If I'm wrong, 
that's fine. I'm a big boy. You know, I can lose money. It's not a problem. I often do things that are not popular and not all of them are going to work. And that's okay with me. I'm mentally prepared for that. But what would kill me is if, if I bought Charter, I didn't understand it. It went from 500 to 350 and I just blew out of it because I thought, you know, it's levered. It's a terrible business. Who would want cable? You know, that would kill me. The psychology is more what I focus on in March and what I'm going to be comfortable with. And that was buying stuff I knew cold. Formula One, Charter I knew cold. The Liberty Story I knew cold. I felt like, and really with Q now, I, I feel like I know those at least as well as everybody else. But I, I also understand myself well enough to know if they go against me in the near term, it's not going to stress me out. I'm not going to make a bad decision. That's how I was. I had followed QVC since 2018. Like I got real interested at the Liberty Day. And I got interested because I was sitting there and Mike George comes up to present. All these guys just start looking at their Bloomberg phone or on the at their terminal, you know, <laughs> yeah, like on their phone. Yeah, like they're like, oh, yeah. fuck this. Like, I don't want to be here. <laughs> start sleeping but man there's yeah. like one lady didn't turn her volume off and i just hear like this clicking of pictures every single slide and i looked around at the room and none of the guys in the room were interested at all and i noticed three women were yeah. like very perked up and i just kind of thought to myself this is interesting that that here's an entity that everybody is going to basically the church of malone and they could care less about this entity yeah that's I, th- right. I thought that that was an interesting sort of like psychology. And then the other thing that I thought was funny as I was going through these old transcripts is Maffei was asked whether or not China or COVID was a problem in any of his businesses. I think it was Swinburne, who's a good analyst. I'm not trying to, you know, shit on him or anything like that. Yeah, it was Morgan Stanley TMT. You're and right like he that. totally yeah. forgot Curate. <laughs> and Greg was like, well, I mean, I do have one business that's completely dependent on China. Doing, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, it's important, by the way. Our products come from China. It really does matter. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's, you know, I would say this. Investing is not easy. You know, it's, it's, it's not. And anybody who tells you it's easy has no idea what they're doing. In my view, if they think it's easy, they don't understand the risk they're taking. That's my personal view. So I don't expect things to be easy. I expect it to be difficult. I do, in general, like the mentality. If nobody's interested, that's probably an interesting place to look. And unfortunately, you're going to sift through a lot of stuff you really would rather not own. But when you find something that you wouldn't mind owning, I mean, you can get some gems. I am, you know, Buffett describes himself as, you know, I'm whatever, 80% Graham and, you know, 20% Fisher. If you ask me how to describe myself and my style, my style is probably 80% Greenblatt and 20% Buffett. I very much prefer, you know, I like going to the, what's the analogy he uses, going to the swap meets. You know, I, I like digging through and trying to find gems that I think people, it, it's fun for me. Yeah. You know, it, it, I think people are missing. I enjoy that a lot. I get less excited when everybody's excited. It's just sort of a natural, I'm oddly optimistic about everything, but I, when everybody agrees with me, I start to think we're all wrong. Yeah. And I, I don't know why that is. It's just a natural tendency of mine. You know, it just, I guess it's like betting at the the track is, Yes, if you're taking the best odds, you're probably going to win, but it doesn't matter if you win. If the odds are messed up, you know, you win and you win very little. The one time you lose, you lose everything. It just, in my mind, it's, I prefer what you're saying, which is to be alone and for nobody to like it. When people started liking Charter in 2019 and 2020, I, I started liking it less, yeah, unfortunately. For no, me. I get nervous. I wish I would have liked it more, yeah. <laughs> but it makes me nervous. I, I don't, uh, you know, I, I don't expect this to be easy. And I think, you know, the real money is made when you're finding things that other people are. It's not the market that we're currently in, but I, I agree with you. One of the things that like fucking drives me nuts with SaaS is 
the error that I have made consistently is underestimating a long-term mindset and inflections and operating leverage. I'm I'm happy that I was smart enough to understand it when 2018 happened in Charter and I could look past what was happening and what was on the come. Because on the current valuation, I sort of didn't really get it. But once I did some math on the far out years, I really got it. Right. With SaaS right now, the thing that it feels like is, one, I'm not competent to enter that game. But even if I sort of was, the bases are so small that I feel like the error rates in the out years are so high. Yeah. And yeah. I guess that the the question that I've been asking myself is, should I play more of those games in less concentrated bets? Which, you know, I mean, let's we can just go to position sizing. I mean, for anyone that followed you on Twitter, at one point you were 44% in Q. I mean, how do you yep. how do you think about, you know, sizing a position that big? How much of it was, well, this is a transaction that I really like versus the business that I like yeah. and sort of, you know, now that you're sitting holding Q, you know, I've, I've backed my position down to 10%. Again, this is not financial advice. This is entertainment purposes only. I can tell you at 10%, it's not the easiest business to hold. I know I want it in my portfolio. I know I want it big enough to make a difference, but I, I really wonder whether or not, you know, seven is maybe more appropriate for my tolerance. Hmm. Well, it, it, I think that gets back to the psychology. I mean, it, it really is. And I, I think it's more about how much confidence you will have if the price goes against you. Yeah. I, I, you know, everybody's confident when stocks go up and no, you know, it's, <laughs> it's a bevelin good. I mean, it, you know, everybody, when stocks are going up and it looks like you're, everybody thinks it's the greatest thing in the world. And then when, you know, prices back off, everybody's like, this is a total disaster and what a piece of crap, you know? So I think it's really how you deal with the down. And if, in my mind, if you say, well, I love the idea, but really, you know, the most hit I could take to my portfolio is, let's say, I don't want to have a drawdown in my entire portfolio from one position of more than, my old boss used to say more than 100 basis points, right? Huh. So let, let's say that you said, no, I'm willing to do, I'm willing to take 300 basis points of pain on a single position. That my overall performance gets hit by 3% if I'm wrong about a position. Then I would say, well, you know, for Q, could Q go to, I don't, who knows where it is now, 650. I'm choosing to ignore it because it's going against yeah, me. Yeah, it's been a rough month. Come on, Q. Well, Come it's been, on, Greg. It's been, rough, it's, months. It's, been rough, it's been a rough two weeks. What are you talking <laughs> that's about? Fair, that's I don't fair. want to see what happens for the next month. So it was hitting highs two weeks ago. Yeah, yeah that's down, true. But, I guess it's uh, felt you know, like a if month. If you say, yeah, and it, what's, you know, I've still, luckily, you know, it's, it's the position, even though it's a little bit up on it, but that's not the way I look at it. The way I look at it is, how much do you think it could go down? Like, let's be, let's be honest. Could it go down 50%? Sure. Yeah. Could it go, could it go to $3? Definitely. Like I, you know, could it go to one times free cash flow? Yeah, absolutely. I would buy so many shares. You know, I, we can get into the thesis of why I think it's interesting here, but let, let's just forgetting what the thesis is for a second. Does the market have to agree with my thesis in the short term? Absolutely yeah. not. You know, they, any stock can go anywhere at any time, you know? So that I, I think to myself is 50% down. Is that reasonable? Well, it's very possible. Is it reasonable? I don't think so, but is it possible? Sure. And so for me, you say, well, okay, well, what's my current positioning in it? Well, I'm now, I stupidly sold the preps to take a, uh, to take a tax loss at 93, but, and I can't buy them back for another couple of weeks. But so I, I'm now down to just the common and the common is probably a 20% position for me. I haven't updated, I'll update my numbers and then post them on Twitter uh, later today since it's the end of the month. But it's probably gone, you know, given a 17% correction in the stock, I would guess it's gone from a 28% position to a 22% position. And so you say, well, okay, well, 
wow, that's you know 600 basis points off your performance. And it's like, well, I'm actually willing to lose a thousand basis points of performance on this if I'm yeah. wrong. That doesn't bother me. It, I am perfectly willing to take that much of a mark to market loss. I'm even willing to take that much of an actual capital impairment if I'm wrong on this security. And we can talk about why, and it's my personality. But so for me, the process of investing, and it gets Twitter likes to devolve into this, is it growth, is it value, what bucket do you fit into? I don't really know what any of that means personally. For me, it's a very simple concept. I'm giving you a pile of money today and my expectation is that you're going to give me money back over time. And that money can come in a lot of different ways. It can come in a lump. You know, and that's actually my personal preference is that's why I like liquidations. The returns are not amazing, but you get all of your money back so quick. And then you get these little options that maybe, you know, they hit and a few of them do and they're great, but you don't, you know, you don't have any bait in it. So who cares? You know, it doesn't so matter. So will you hold those, sorry, not to interrupt, but will you hold those? Like, do you basically just hold like a basket of these basic, like long dated options that are perpetually... Well, perpetual until they go under or whatever, right? But until like, yeah, but I wait until the liquidation almost in every case, but there are some cases where I, I've been a little early to the liquidation party, like CBA Florida was an example of that one. But if I think it's going to liquidate, actually, I was pretty certain CBA Florida probably would liquidate and it was trading for 50 cents on the cash dollar. I, I just sort of go all in and I hope that it takes less than two years for that to work itself out. And, and in this case, it took exactly two years for it to work itself out. And the returns ended up good. I mean, with CBA Florida, my IRR on that one over two years has been 14%. And I have not only all my money back, but I've realized that return now. And then I have this little dub, I think could be worth another 20% on my basis that, I, that I'm now, I have negative basis on. So it's a nice position to be in. Yeah. I mean, those are great because, and a lot of them actually will give you money back within months. And you could get you know, 80, 90% of your, your bait back. And then you have this little stub that could be a double or a triple. Or, and so I love those because you don't have to do a lot of work. It's very simple, right? You, you see their balance sheet, you know how much money they have. They've already announced they're paying it back to you. You can figure out, I pay this, I'm getting this much back. And I think the stub is worth X, Y, or Z. Your overall ROIs on CBA Florida is actually going to end up being pretty good. It's going to end up being a, a double, but not quite a double, maybe 80% return. And it's going to take years for that to play out, but it's going to be a good return. Most of these aren't that high. You know, maybe you make 20%, maybe you make 30%. It takes a couple of years. But because you get so much money back, your IRRs are phenomenal. If I could do nothing but those, I would do those all day long. It really takes no diligence. You're just, do I believe that these audited financials are correct? Do I believe that these guys are crooks? You know, no, I believe that the audited financials are fine. I believe these guys are not crooks. Then you just sort of plow in. And I would make that 100% of my portfolio if I could find the right one. So when you put out money and you're getting money back, for me, the decision is pretty simple. If it's a lot of money coming back very quickly, my diligence timeline is yeah, like, compressed, yeah. it takes me a day. You know, yeah, yeah it's like, I don't, if on the other hand, what you're saying is, no, you got to put out a lot of money today and you're going to get paid over the next 20 years, right? So the chart charters, I, it was 600 bucks. They're going to do $30 in free cash for this year. So it's, it's 20 times free cash. By the way, I'm not saying, I don't know if that's expensive, cheap, you know, it depends on who you ask. I wouldn't sit here and argue that it's it's mispriced, you know, it's severely mispriced. It might be a little cheap or a little expensive, but probably not severely mispriced. But if you tell me that I'm paying 20 times cash flow, so I'm going to get my cash flow back over 20 years. And you say, but it's fine because the cash flow is growing. When I have that long of a duration to get my bait back, 
for me, the diligence process becomes pretty steep. Yeah, you better be right now, if for you, a long time. You've got to be right. And so, and it's not just, so I, I really need the right people in every investment I make, but it, it's not just that I, I say, oh, these are the right guys. They're telling me it's fine. I actually have to understand the industry. I mean, you've got to, for charter for me, I wouldn't have gotten there, not in size, except I spent two hours with John Malone at a shareholder meeting. Believe it or not, shareholder meeting, and I think it was 2015, there was like four people in the room That's in Denver insane. and you know, Englewood. And John gives in it, you might be able to find the recording somewhere. John goes on a two hour tear about the thesis of charter, the cable industry, the merger with Time Warner, huh. you know, convergence, uh, how the growth and connectivity, the opportunity for charter. I mean, it was, I mean, on, my mind just went, Phew. I mean, it was just, it blew my mind. I, I'm sitting there taking notes. Courtney uh, Chun is a friend. Uh, and is the head of uh, portfolio. She's the chief portfolio officer at Liberty. She leans over. She's like, John's on fire today. I was like, yeah, <laughs> guy's on fire. It was brilliant. Yeah. You know, you read Cable Cowboy and Brian Roberts talks about how he sat next to John or a plane ride, I think from like Tokyo or something. And it was like, he got an MBA essentially on the flight. You know, John gave it to him. That was my MBA in, in Cable. After that ended, I called my PM. I was like, this needs to be our biggest position by a lot. Not not by a little bit, but by like a huge amount. Hmm. I mean, if you're comfortable with 5%, this needs to be 10. Uh, this deal is going to work. I have to have that level of comfort with something if you're asking me to make a 15-year commitment to yeah. it, right? I have to believe myself. I can't trust somebody else. So it really, for me, it's the duration, which is another way of saying the valuation. The valuation, if it's high, doesn't mean I won't do it. It just means I really have to get it. So then you walk me through SaaS. We can even get into media if you want. Yeah. Know more about media than I do about SaaS. But you walk, you say SaaS to me. I look at these companies. I don't know, thirty times revenue, forty times revenue. I don't even bother trying to understand the business. And you can say, well, that that to me is that's stupid. You should because this is where the puck is headed. And it's like you have to have so much understanding of not just that business. But everybody else in that industry, not just today, but you've got to yeah, tell me who the new entrants will be over the next 10 years. Good luck, dude. I hope you're right. I just, I can't, I know my pea brain will not get yeah. there. I know it. So, you know, what do I do? I go out of my garage and I make, you know, shelving units. Which are very nice, by the way. You did a great job, man. When you posted the picture, I was like, wow, he's got a skill. You sort of short sold yourself on that. <laughs> do you have a workbench? I have. I've set up a workbench for myself. I've got a miter saw. I've got a table saw. I'm gearing up on it. My family's been a bit of beneficiary of it. And I've, I've really enjoyed Dude, it. It's a lot of legit. Fun. I, it's a great retirement I, I, habit for you. Yeah, it's a good one. I, I like very, you know, manly retirement activities. A big hunter. I love hunting. I'm getting into carpentry, you know, lawnmower repair, you know, small engine repair is interesting. That's dope. But I, I would rather do that, you know, than try to figure out the next, you know, forget 30 years. You got to figure out the next 50 years of that stuff. And I, and I don't, you know, I don't know. By the way, it may work. I don't know. It's not that it's going to work or not going to work. So much of it is on the come, and I don't understand what on the come means. Yeah. And, and so I, I just st- and, and there's enough we can do, right? I mean, I can lose money in other things. I can lose money in QVC. So yeah, you know, <laughs> well, there's enough we can do. To- we're going to get you on QVC to sell your furniture. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there we go. I, it's going to have to be a little too high priced, but with the easy pay, we're going to be good. So funny. It, it just an anecdote. I, I uh, one of my dad's best friends, a urologist, and my my dad splits time between Denver and Taos, New Mexico. And it, one of his best friends lives in Taos, and he's a retired urologist. He's actually a carpenter as well, but his pride and joy is his uh, his honeycombs. You know, his, huh. and so he makes honey. And he's he'd be a great podcast guy. He'd walk you through all the ways you can keep black bears out of your 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 bee nest, your honeycombs. 
And he, he's like, you know, honey is crack cocaine to the black bear. It's crack uh, cocaine to me. This whole thing. So he says, yeah, yeah. It's good <laughs> stuff. So yeah, he jokes. He says, you know, I'd be happy to sell you some of this honey. It's it's $12,000 a bottle, which is just my cost, by the way. Just my cost. <laughs> <laughs> so that's me that's with carpentry. Like, I like yeah, that. No, I'm, I'm happy to do it for cost. Like if you, I need to run an advertisement for you know Westchester-based former hedge fund partner stock analyst making cabinets for eighty thousand dollars a cabinet. <laughs> I like it. Happy to do it. Custom, purely custom. I was talking to Toby Carlisle the other day about it. And one of the fun things about doing the podcast with him is I, I've become like good friends with him. And the thing that just drives me nuts when I see people going at him and his returns on Twitter, like you know what you said about. And I'm not trying to put words in his mouth. This is my perception of what he's saying. But what you said about the amount of duration view that you have to have and how cheapness protects you. I think if he ran a discretionary portfolio, right? I, I think his bet is a statistical bet right now, which is why I call him the Walter Schloss. And I'll have him on if he mm-hmm. wants to, to sort of dispute anything that I'm saying. But I think if he ran a, a discretionary portfolio, he would do what you're saying, like sift through some of this cheaper stuff and find like, look, people want to, you know, you can say what you need to about QVC to make yourself like to have a hot take. But Maffei is a legit capital allocator. John right. Malone is a legit businessman. Barry Diller knew what he was doing when he got into this. Now, does right. the future look like the past? No, I don't think anybody sitting right. here is going to say it does. But man, that security is cheap. And to the point about the ten percent that I hold, and like it's emotionally difficult for me. But every time I think about mm-hmm. it rationally, I get to the same place that you are because I'm like, all right, if they cut this thing in half, and I am remotely close on this business, and remotely close on the guys that are running it, it's going to be really hard to lose to to take a permanent impairment. But you got to know what you so. own. That's right. I mean, it, that gets to the psychology of just knowing what you own. I mean, we, we talk about, you know, the business, is it different? Is it, I think there are two legs of the thesis and I, I've bought into the first one and I am excited to see if the next one is also right. The first leg of the thesis for me was that the story changed and it's not what you'd say is, well, look at their numbers are good because of COVID. The story changing has nothing to do with their numbers being good for COVID. The story changing has everything to do with their capital allocation. What they've done historically was to repurchase shares, which is, I, you know, I, I would have been happy to promote, I would have told them that that was the right uh, decision. They stopped doing that in 2019 because you know the numbers were coming in soft. And what they wanted to do smartly was just build cash and see how it went, see if they could actually right the ship. All of a sudden, 2Q comes and they tell you a couple of things. They say, we've righted the ship. And then you ask them you know, online, offline, they'll tell you that COVID has been a bump. It's more like uh, sort of a steroid injection yeah. for something that boosted something we, we already saw. And so what, what do they decide to do? Well, share repurchases have not worked. I mean, you look at where the stock is, right? And you look at where they bought all their stock. Share repurchases aren't working. So what do they do? They give you on a I mean, $10.50 stocks, what I paid, they give you $4.50 back, uh, effectively in cash. I mean, one you could keep as a, the preferred was $3 of that. You could keep that if you wanted to. You could sell that if you wanted to and basically create another dividend, which is what I chose to do. But if you wanted the yield, you could keep the yield. But they gave you 40-ish percent of your capital back, which was basically a year's worth of cash flow that they stranded on the balance sheet that they didn't pay out. So what they told you is, we'll keep doing this. We may decide to buy back stock, but our plan is to return capital capital back to you. So I, I look at that and I say, okay, net of the $4.50 that I was getting back on a $10.50 security, I'm basically in this thing for $6. 
on a trailing basis, pro forma for the dividend, their free cash flow. I tabulated at $2.75. Some people say you can't include green, whatever. I mean, the, the guy at the lowest possible end is at $2.50. You, know, you can make a scenario where it's it's more like you know $3, $3 and change pro forma for the preferred. Either way, I'm paying three times for that. So the bet I'm now making is that within three years, I'm going to get all of my money back. That's essentially the bet. That's, that is the new thesis, that I get all my money back. So what happens to me in year four doesn't really matter that much. At worst, if it doesn't go away in three years, it's going to be a very inefficient investment in the worst case, but I'm getting my money back. Yeah. That is an outcome that I go I go big in. If, I'm, if I feel comfortable that I'm not putting my capital at risk and that it's actually going to come back to me, I start pushing chips on the table. And, and if, I, if I know the business and I know the people, then I can, I can even go bigger, which is part of the reason why I went bigger. But the duration of that is tiny, yep. right? So you don't, I don't have to be right about the business. If the money's coming back to me in three years, it doesn't really matter if I'm right on the business or you not. Be right as for long three as years, that money right? comes back to me, correct. Yeah. yeah, I have to be right for three years. I don't have to be right for three. That's right. So the second leg of the thesis is that they, in fact, the business is on the right track, that these guys are correct, that they actually had fixed it. I think there's some reasons to believe that that's true. And I, I certainly obviously want that to be true because I, I have a lot of, I own a lot of stock, but I also, I really like the people. Yeah, it'd be nice to see them turn it, right? Like, I mean, this has yeah, been hard it, for them. Yes. I don't want to be like a cheerleader for them, but they've gone through a lot no, of I, shit I, with the HSN acquisition. It seems yeah, like they've right. righted the ship on Zulily. Everybody's yeah. sort of dunking on them, and I don't think that they necessarily deserve that. It would be nice to well, see them. <laughs> not that I I'm need not, to sit here and yeah. be like, oh, poor Greg Maffei. I mean, he had a nice pay year last year, but don't worry about <laughs> that's Greg. Right. Like, don't worry about okay. Greg. Greg's doing just fine. <laughs> don't worry about Greg. But it would be nice. He'll still be able to afford toilet paper. Don't worry about yeah, Greg. Yeah, well, you know what? It's like rooting for a superstar to come back and win again. So for me, it's, it's yes, from a Wall Street perspective, I agree with you. It, it'd be really nice if they could get some, you know, some respect just for their own, you know, egos. But it, for me, it's, it goes a little bit deeper. It's, I, I don't want the business to go away because I don't want Mike to have to fire half the people yeah. there. I lived through that uh, with a retailer and it, it was awful. I mean, it just you want to talk about that? Call it out. Like it, we could segue. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's yeah, great. No, We're talking I, about retail. We can segue, yeah. but it's awful. And I, I, I would so much. Just if you don't mind giving a little bit of background and just talking yeah, about like yeah. being on the board and having those discussions and, yeah. you know, we'll see where it goes. Also, real quick, I don't mean to cut you off after I just said that. No, but to anyone that's listening, like I know I said it in the beginning, I mean it now. This is just two people talking about why they take investments. Like, do not go out and buy anything that we're talking about. This is not advice. I just trying to get the peek into somebody's mind that I have a lot of respect for. So that's the purpose of this conversation. I, I never know who's listening, so I just want to make sure to say that. Yeah. Don't buy stuff you see on 13Fs. Don't see these fucking gurus and go out and buy stuff. Don't do any of that. But if you want to peek into how people think, that's the purpose of what I'm trying to do here. So, yeah. Right. And it's, you're doing a great job, by the way. No, trying. I got a good interviewee. <laughs> yeah, we're making it easy for each other. <laughs> the backstory. So I'm a big context guy. For me, context really matters, right? It's not just the data point. It's what, what goes into the data point underneath. That really does matter for the Zale story, which is one I really like. I don't tell it very often because it's, it's aged, but there was some interest on in Twitter, so I'm glad we're talking about it. So the, the backstory is I started working for a an activist fund based in Greenwich called Breeden Capital. So uh, Richard Breeden was the chairman of the SEC in the 90s under uh, Bush Sr., started a hedge fund in 2006. Actually, a, a good friend of mine was hired to be the, the head of 
uh, research and trading for the fund. Rich, Richard's a, is a lawyer and an administrator, politician, mm-hmm. uh, not an investor. So he, he smartly hired a actually a guy who worked for Michael Price, which is who I interned for, is kind of responsible for my entire career. He worked for Michael and then went to work for Richard. He needed analysts, and I was kind of in flux. I was at a, a small event-driven hedge fund called Kellogg Capital, which was the uh, Peter Kellogg's family fund, Spearley's Kellogg guy, which some people listening might actually know Spearley's Kellogg. It's a business Goldman acquired for $5 billion in the 90s, maybe the early 2000s. Anyway, uh, so I was there. I was a little bit in flux. Bob hired me at Breeden. Breeden's mandate was 10 stocks, very concentrated, long only. And he was it was activism. And the activist angle was governance. So he was considered a governance expert. He was going to use governance to improve returns. And so it was our job to go find securities that had underperformed where we thought we could improve the governance. We thought we could improve decision making. So the very first investment I ever made was uh, huh. there was Applebee's. And the the that's I, interesting. I've been. Yeah, I focused on consumer at most of my career. I find consumer businesses are just easier for me to understand where that yeah. where the consumer is the, the ultimate customer. It, they're just easier for me. There was a roadmap happening in the mid 2000s. And it's by the way, it's still playing out of asset light refranchising that sort of there was an innovation that occurred in the 2000s of royalty based leverage. So you could borrow money to a, a certain EBITDA multiple, which obviously you can still do. And for restaurants, that's not a high number because you know restaurants tend to have some volatility. But yeah, then you can if you have a, a franchise more. royalty stream, yep. you can exactly. And so what I what I saw with Applebee's was their casual dining was was taking a digger. It was weak. Applebee's was in that camp. They had well relatively weak results. But if you peel back the onion, I, I think it was something like they were you know sixty forty company owned versus franchised or seventy thirty. They had a big franchised network, and so and I. Looked at it, I was like, "Look, you're trading for seven times EBITDA. If you do a refranchising, you know, you're, you're going to be worth more literally overnight. Your cash flow is going to improve. And by the way, hmm. the operators are all doing a better job. Their margins are higher. Their same store sales are higher. Like, and it, it makes sense. You know, you, you put a an entrepreneur in charge of ten restaurants. You know, the guy's going to run them like it's his livelihood, as opposed to you know somebody in Kansas City who's just sort of checking in on a weekly basis or a monthly basis. So that was our our whole thesis when we bought it, and it, we ran for the board. They actually as I don't know if they did it because of us. Or, sorry, just real uh, quick. Operationally, like it's one thing on a spreadsheet to sit back and be like, hey, just refranchise, right? Living through that as the investor and like assessing the person's capability to delegate. I, I guess if they have that many restaurants, they're probably good at delegating anyway. But the franchise model, it's a different way of running hmm. a business, right? Like how do you assess whether or not that person is capable of releasing yeah, no some doubt. of that control? Man, I, you know, when I looked at the management team of Applebee's, for me, it was pretty easy yeah, that I makes just sense. say, look, you're already doing this. Just do it more. Right. I'm not I'm not asking you to recreate the wheel here. I'm, I'm asking you, in, in, you yeah. know, take the restaurants that people want to buy and put them up for sale. And interestingly enough, RBI, so Burger King did this in a, in a way at the time I thought was insane, but it ended up, you know, turns out they're brilliant. You know, so it's not not only where, where was I, you know, were they not insane? I was dead wrong. What they were doing is brilliant. Where they're they're actually transferring these for little or no money with just a growth mm. commitment and a development commitment. That's really the strategy, right? Because it's not, you don't get the multiple on the sales proceeds. So all the brands were like, well, I'm going to sell them for five times EBITDA. I'm not going to sell them for four. And, you know, and so it's like, no, no, you're yeah. missing it. If you can grow revenue, like you're going to get a multiple. If you get a multiple, nobody cares, you know? And, and so it, it, RBI figured that out. And at the time I was like, God, you're, you're not even selling these. Like you need to delever and and no, 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 what we need to do is grow. And that, that was actually exactly right, which I've got some insights on that. But 
the Applebee's story was take it what you're already doing and do it more. You don't have to do it full, but just do it more. And you naturally can scale down overhead at corporate. You know, you don't need as many your divisional managers, you can change their scopes. So you can either lower them or you can make them more efficient, et cetera. And so your SGNA doesn't need to be as high if you're managing a franchise organization than if you're managing you know, a large footprint of company operated stores. I think it's a very compelling, the franchise model is a compelling model financially, but I, I also think operationally it works really well. I mean, I think that's why McDonald's does it. I think that's why Wendy's does it. You know, I, I think there's a, an efficiency to having an entrepreneur and owner operator in there as opposed to just having, you know, a bunch of suits running it from a distance. So that was the thesis. And they, instead of doing our refranchising plan, they put the business up for sale. We ended up running a proxy. It was hostile. I don't think, I, I can't remember if we ended up filing proxy. We settled. We got two board seats. And of course, I, I haven't been on either one of the Applebee's or sales boards, but my boss was on both. So I became an advisor to both boards. They were already running a sales process at the last minute. I mean, it, it was it was a really weird time. We were, we were probably six months too late. So I, I think I paid something like 18 bucks a share. We sold it for 25.50 or something. I was really hoping we could sell it for more and the multiples were low in my view. But so what happened, funny anecdote, this is just the, the last thing I'll give you before we launch into Zale. So it was the meeting the Sunday at Aiken at Gump in New York City. It's always it's always a Sunday meeting, right? Because it's a Monday announcement of a deal. So the, the Sunday, I spent my whole Sunday at Aiken Gump's offices. And, uh, and I wasn't in the board meeting. I was off the side and my you know, boss would come out for a break and talk about it and go back in. So they, they, they approved the sale. And what, what got the sale over, so management at the last minute comes in and says, don't sell it. We'll do the refranchising plan and we'll cut the costs. You know, I was like, yeah, because if it gets sold, <laughs> yeah. you just washed your job. We could have done you know? this a long like, time so, ago, yeah, guys. Of course. <laughs> you know, you should have figured that out six months ago. If you would have said this, yeah. we, the stock would have worked huh. and we wouldn't have to be here. But here's where we are, you know. So what got the business sold, at least in my view, and I, I'm not, I wasn't in the room, but in my view, what got the business sold was, it was Lehman Brothers. So Lehman Brothers is in the room. They were doing, they were sort of the, the acts on securitized royalties uh, at the time and leveraged against them. And you had, when, when was this? Well, 20, 2017. Not 2017. They weren't around then. You had. Yeah. Big difference. Oh, 27, 2007. Yeah, sorry, 2007. No, no worries. Yeah. No worries. It's just Lehman Brothers in 2017 don't go, don't go together. I'm, I'm retired and I'm old, you know. Dates all blend together. That's right. Yeah, it doesn't, yeah now, now yeah. it's on a t-shirt, right? Not, they don't have offices anymore. So in 2007, they two of the securitized royalty bankers were in the room and they said, look, guys, the market's open for you. You can do a deal. It's stapled. Huh. The market's closing. It's closing every day. And if you remember, you remember the the Jim Cramer, the funny video where he's like, you know, the Fed doesn't understand what's huh. going on, the CNBC. I mean, this is around that time, right? And so they say, you've got staple financing, but the window's closing. If you want to do this, you need to do it now. And then boom, wow. we hit the bid from IHOP at 2550. And I was, I was kind of bummed. But then at the time, you know, then yeah. we saw what happened later. It was like, Jesus, that was a great sale, right? Good job. You know, it, I was kind of bummed at the time, but Okay, so that's the context, right? So we got on the board. Dude, real quick, isn't it crazy how life works that way? It really is. I mean, it really is. If you if you could only divine the future, like my boy so that lives that on the beach not. in L.A., one of the smartest guys I know, always saw the world differently, and and is self made and retired at like thirty four or thirty five, but flipped two oil companies, hmm. and man, that last sale, I think it was like two thousand fifteen or two thousand sixteen. He was sweating bullets because he bet everything he had twice. And, you know, like he, he was, yeah, well, wow. I mean, he's, he's a monster. My kind of guy. Uh, I like him. I'm <laughs> going to try to get him on, but he doesn't like podcasts. But anyway, 
he was just telling me, he's like, dude, the, the prices that people are bidding right now, it's crazy. And like a crash is coming and I know it. And it, he was worried he was going to get locked up in stock. And it's just, it's wild how one transaction like that at the right time getting out can change everything, right? It makes all the difference in the world. I mean, it really does. And, and that's why I say we were probably three to six months too late because at the time, I mean, we really caught it at the end and the market just, as you know, evaporated and then everything melted down a year later. But yeah, it, it, I mean, luckily for us, we got it done. If, if I would have been maybe yeah, three or right. six months earlier, whatever, who cares? Style, right? but, but what happened is private equity, you can see this in the proxy and that when you read through proxies, uh, deal proxies, especially you go to the background of the transaction, you pull up the old Applebee's one, you can see it. The, the party A, party B, party hmm. C were all bidding. They all dropped out. A significant number of them were private equity firms. Financing is drying up. They all dropped out. Why? Well, if you can't get a securitized finance, exactly right. Their returns are based on, you know, financing. And if they can't, I mean, in part, if they can't get the financing, it becomes a lot less attractive. And IHOP, which was the strategic, uh, one of the strategics, was the one that ended up closing it. Because while they wanted the securitized financing, they were thinking of it. That's interesting. Strategic purchase. Exactly. So, yeah, so we got it done. And so now, okay, so now we've had a success, right? We've, we've transacted a business. We've gone on a board. We got it sold. This is great. So then my next investment idea was Zale Corp. And so when I, when I looked at Zale, and this was early in 2007 okay. when we were sort of So you're going through Applebee's, the process on Zale, Applebee's. Okay. Are you talking to Lehman about the yeah, markets closing yeah, up I'm, at and, this and, point or not quite yet? No. And, and by the way, I mean, now it's, you know, it's, it seems so obvious that like you should have just had this conversation because it might have changed your view of the market. But you have to understand yeah. in 2007, no one thought that 2008 was possible, right? We, it wasn't in our, it was not in my brain space. It's like in 2019, yep. no one thought COVID-19 was possible, right? And now it's all we talk about, right? Do the same thing for September 11th. You know, it's nobody thought a terrorist attack in the United States was possible. And then now everybody knows it's definitely possible. And so we're, it, the world definitely changed. We were not focused on, there were so many things I was not focused on in 2007, so many risks that I was not underwriting in 2007 that I underwrite on a daily basis, just in my back processes now as a result of 08. So I find Zale, which by the way, now one of those processes is <laughs> don't own a jewelry company in a recession. That's the number one, that is the number one thing I want. That actually listening. is investment do advice. Don't own a jewelry retailer in a recession. Don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> it's investment advice. Don't do it. So I, yeah, I find Zale, and what I see is I see a, it's, it's really a two-horse race nationally. It's not a duopoly necessarily. It's not the right way to think about it because there's a lot of fragmentation in the industry, but there's two big players, right? There's Zale and there's Sterling, which is A. And so I see these two players, and I see, and both of them, Sterling was public in, in the UK, but you could get their financials, and you see Zale is a, is a pretty, had been a pretty material outperformer early in its life and had been a pretty material underperformer sort of more recently, not bad. Sales were still growing. And it was an industry actually forever that was a good industry. I mean, people got married regardless of economic cycles. And it, even though I, I don't love generally products that are sold, not bought. So you, you think of like jewelry as a product that a guy shows up to a jewelry store, he has no idea what he wants. And so it's incumbent on the salesperson to sort of tell him what he wants. The difference between this and like a, a timeshare, for example, which is another product that's sold and not bought is this is actually necessary. Like you actually need to show up if you're going to. No, propose. yeah, I think so. With for the, most people, at least in my view, it's necessary for most guys. If, if you find a woman that does not require That's or right. even want yeah. a ring, or a man, a, you know, in 2020, your partner general. Uh, but yeah. most people, or a man, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. That's right. They don't require a ring, whoever they be. 
good for you. But most people do. So my thought was it's an industry that had grown pretty. I mean, you, you could look at jewelry sales in general. They were pretty good. Weddings are the key to their business. And wedding business has historically been not resilient, but not been quite so bad. So I look at the industry. I look at us, Zale. I look at its underperforming. I think here, here's, and then, oh, by the way, Sterling actually made a bid. Now, it wasn't a formal bid, but it was in the papers. Like the journal reported that Sterling had made a bid. Stock, I think, was high teens. Sterling had made a bid in the mid-20s. So I'm thinking, oh, you know, okay, so I've got a business that's underperforming. It's, and by the way, there's a, there's a whole, there was an, uh, an interesting part of their business that I became really attracted to. But so then I, I see it's, it's underperforming its peer. It's peers bidding for them. They spurn the bid. Gives me kind of a backstop. And then I look at the, the underlying business. There's two businesses inside of sale. There's the jewelry company, which is the obvious one. And there's an insurance company. Now, I don't love insurance. I don't, I'm not, I've owned insurance. I understand some of it. I don't understand all of it. But in, in general, I don't like it. This insurance business, though, is gold. So what I, and I guess pun intended, yeah. what they insure is the ring, right? So they insure a 14 karat gold ring with a diamond on it. And so, and they, they had... Up until the early 2000s, they had three tiers of products. They had a, a three-year warranty, a five-year warranty, a seven-year warranty. And people would almost, almost always choose the seven-year. You look at Sterling, Sterling sold a lifetime warranty. And you'd be like, well, okay, so what's the difference between a three-year, five-year, seven-year, and lifetime? The answer is nothing. It's yeah. a 14-karat gold ring doesn't break. And oh, you know, by the way, you have to, as part of your contract on this warranty, this insurance product, you have to come into the store every year huh. and get it cleaned for free and checked, right? So if you don't bring the diamond in, it voids the warranty. So you pay upfront for this warranty. Dude, how many people do that? It's not a huge cost. Do you pay $1,500 for a ring? Really? It, it Actually, everybody. <laughs> and, what it, huh. it, and because, so think of it, it's a guy who comes in and spending $1,500 on a ring or $2,000 on a ring. The salesperson says, for $100, would you like a lifetime warranty? I don't know when you when I proposed to my wife. I, I had uh, actually it was the CEO of, of Zale who sourced my ring for me, a guy called Theo Killian, who you should have on at some point, and he's amazing. He does board seats and consulting now. But so he got me my wife's yeah. ring. I had this ring in my pocket while no doubt, in, no in doubt. Midtown Manhattan, and I'm like freaked out. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, this burns is, a you hole know, in your I don't pocket. Want this thing, get it away from <laughs> me. I don't. You know, I was like, yeah, please get it away from me. I do not want this. And so what guys have that emotion, I think a lot of them do. And so one of the things they think is, yeah, if I'm already spending two grand, should I spend an extra hundred dollars to make sure that no something happens? Like I can bring it back and get it. My question was how many yes. people follow the terms of the insurance and actually come in and get it cleaned? Oh. Yeah. So your breakage is huge. No, not, none of them do, but it doesn't matter because they, the thing is they, yeah, the breakage is big. So, but, but nobody ever came back anyway. Yeah. And so if they come back a as a customer cow. service, you'd help them. It's a cash cow. Yeah. So, hmm. okay. So I liked that That's business, smart. but there was a nuance. So because Zale offered a three, five, seven year product, Sterling offered a lifetime. It was obviously cheaper if you do a lower duration. Zale figured out, and I don't know who it was in the corporate, it's probably uh, Rodney Carter was the CFO at the time. It's probably him or somebody in his group. So why don't we just do lifetime? So what happens when you switch to lifetime? Well, your price goes up, right? So it was a 20 or 30% price increase going to lifetime just to match where K was already. But the auditor said, for gap accounting purposes, because you're changing the duration of the warranty, even though nothing changes on claims, whatever, you can no longer recognize- Yeah, but your expected loss would be higher, wouldn't it? Well, that's, well, that's what they said. They said, until we know what your expected loss is, 
you need five years for this to, huh. to season before we're going to let you recognize full revenue. So, and as you just said, it's not just revenue, it's pure profit, yeah. right? So what they did was they said, okay, I used to be recognizing this on a 12 month or a 16 month basis or an 18 month basis. Yeah, now it's like the auditor just said, no, whatever. your entire product is going to be recognized over 60 yeah. months, right? Over five years. So now, now when they're reporting same store sales, they're taking a ding for all of the warranty sales, huh. even though the warranty sales are higher. Huh. So, and not only that, it's pure profit. So you basically had a business that round numbers, it really was on a cash flow basis earning $2, but they were reporting more like $1.50, sure. right? I mean, it's very material. And and their, their same store sales were 4%, but they were reporting 2%. Yeah. Comps are and they, down. And they, they would explain yeah, it. And then people puke it and they're like, yeah, huh? Yeah, they would explain it, but the headlines were awful. Right? I can so see, I see myself like, liking something like this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. So, you know, I, I, I'm not a total idiot. Right. So <laughs> no, I, I, see I don't this think so. Just, Unless you're talking mother, to one. Wait, you may be. The, the, the bad stuff's coming, Bill. The bad stuff's coming. Don't worry. So that's <laughs> in there. So I see this. I say, okay, this business is more valuable. It's getting more valuable every day, but it looks less valuable. So it's like right down the middle for me. Right. So I think, and then I, I see it's underperforming, margins are low. So my thought was, oh, and by the way, their competitor was, was bidding for this. So I think, okay. Let's go on the board, which is in general, I would say for the average investor, a huge mistake. Never go on a board. If you can avoid it, don't do huh, it. Why is it just, but, so, I, you'll get to it, but that's interesting. Illiquidity. Yeah. yeah illiquidity. I mean, it, that dovetails with a lot of the, you know, what I think the current market narrative is and why I think it's dead wrong, but, or part of the current market narrative. But so, right, that's what we did. So let's go on the board. They, they invited us on, right, because of the Applebee's experience. They had just hired a new CEO, a, a dear human being called Neil Goldberg, who brought in Theo Killian, who became the interim replacement. And then ultimately, Theo Killian was the one who dug us out of our hole. But so brought in a new CEO, invited us on the board. This guy, Neil Goldberg, was great, came from Children's Place. He said, Mike, my, it's real simple. That part of the problem, the reason why we're underperforming is I think our stores are cluttered. Too much inventory. I want to pull inventory out. Right. And once I clean them up, then I want to take some of that capital and reinvest it into the inventory that I want that I think will actually move. Right? Okay. So I hear that. I'm not a merchandising guy. Right. So I hear that. And I'm like, brilliant. Right. Okay, great. Let's do it. And by the way, what you're doing is you're, you're pulling capital out of the business on a net basis. And so in my little pea brain, yeah, cash you know, flow is going to come back 20, 27. I'm like, this is amazing. Yeah. Like we're going to, we're going to permanently pull capital out of the business. And so what do I think when he said, I want to get the cap, get the inventory out, what he means is I'm going to mark it down and move it. Right. And that in jewelry, that works. Yeah. You mark it down, it moves, it hurts your margins, but it generates a lot of cash if you don't replace it. So I'm all for it. Right. I'm voting. Yes, 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 yes. And so what do I do with it? And so I, I put on Twitter, you know, I got greedy. Well, here's where I got greedy. When he pulled that capital out of inventory, rather than saying, let's just wait, let's just pay down the revolver, let's just see how it goes, and we may need that money later, I said, no, 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 guys, this is a misunderstood story, we're going to sell it, plow it into share repurchase, yeah. keep your leverage up, plow it into share repurchase. I mean, this was the late summer mm -hmm. of 2007. I think we got on the board in the fall, actually, so it was, would have been the end of 2007, start of 2008, well before the Lehman crash, well before... The market, there was turmoil, but it was, I mean, we weren't near crash territory yet. That came way later in the way. So I'm like, you know, buy stock back, buy it at 20. What happened? They did that at my brilliance. And then we had an investor day in Dallas. Everybody, you know, I got the stock ripped to 28 as everybody saw the comps were growing. They had, you know, believed in the merchandising strategy. We were buying back stock. It's amazing. And then what happens? Boom. Yeah. 2008, the crash. And it, it our comps went from plus two to down 20. Now, here's a problem. 
So in the jewelry business, another thing I learned, this was true in 2007, 2008. It may not be true today. I really don't know. I don't, I have sworn off jewelry, you know, <laughs> this is, this um, your, I'm off. Your PTSD, you're never going back. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. Don't ask. <laughs> That's don't ask. fair. But, so what I learned about the jewelry business is in fact, no, what, when you walk into a K versus when you walk into a Zale, K has shit everywhere. Every box is full of shit huh. bright sparkly boom 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 and and neil would say that looks terrible why don't we why don't we have clean and why don't we have great product and very clean and to me that resonates but do you know what it doesn't resonate to the 25 year old guy who's going in to buy a ring he wants to see every option huh. and when he walks into your store and there's only four options versus when he goes to k even if he ends up buying what you had for sale he wants to see all the options because he doesn't know and he wants to be walked through every one of those options and then arrive at the decision to buy. And Kay figured that out. If you stack it in the store, you may not sell it, but it'll lead to another sale. So overall, your inventory will move quite a bit faster. That makes and I, sense. And so they were just they were eating our lunch this whole time. So their comps huh. never went down to the to the degree. I mean, I, we were down 20. They might have been down six or seven, right? And that in a business where you only turn your inventory one time, fucking matters yeah. man like it was brutal and they didn't have leverage we had leverage because of my brilliance and buying stock back at 20 and 22 and 23 dollars and 24 yeah and then you share. don't have revolver capability to go out and invest nope, in inventory and, and shit and then you get it gets tighter nope. it's what what do banks do when it starts to rain they ask for their umbrella back yeah. right so that so so what happens well so i'm i'm in i spent a lot of time in dallas uh, obviously and where we're like creating you know, plans of like Armageddon plans. Like, what do we do if this never gets better? You know, how do we make sure we don't become insolvent? So I, I spent days and days. I learned, there's a very important lesson in there. I learned in those days, and they were pretty dark. I mean, the stock, I think, got to 30 cents or something. I mean, from, from 20 to 30, it was a quarter of a billion dollars. In my Jesus, time, right? what a 12 months so, for yeah. you, right? It, you go from I mean, looking crazy. like a hero Just, on the yeah. buyback to looking like a yeah. zero on the share That's, price. That sucks. The running joke in my family is that, you know, if, if I do something that looks brilliant, just wait. <laughs> yeah, just, just, just wait. I try to avoid the it's brilliance coming. part. So it's I coming. never let yeah. people know. But, but it also means if I do something really dumb, like the next one is probably going to be good. So, you know, don't don't follow me into Follow me into the next one. Yeah, right? So wait, wait until I blow up. And then, you know, I'm, I'm like practically Bill active. So uh, anyway, so <laughs> the, the <laughs> I probably should have said that. Uh, He's been all right. So he got the, back the, in his lane. He's good in yeah, consumer no, stuff. I will tell you, he's one of the smartest people I've ever met. I mean, the guy is fucking brilliant. I, I mean, he is, frankly, might be too smart, but he is, the guy is sharp. I mean, he understands things I will never get. So the only criticism later, but- that I've heard of him that I think might hand, like, carry some water is as an allocator. He may not be as good of an allocator as he is an analyst, but like most people that know of him or know him put him among some of the best analysts they've ever, like, seen. Yeah. So yeah, that's right. I don't know that's that right. you can come He's, at him for that. No, in fact, you know, it, it's not like I know him. Yeah, yeah, well. yeah. no, um, I know you're just a guy commenting times, on it's a not like career. It's, it's like my friend. It's just, but in my experience, him, I would put his analytical ability up against anyone's. I mean, if you were just talking a specific stock and a business and like going through it line by line and understanding it, he'll blow anybody away. Yeah. I'd put him up against especially him. consumer. I, I and I've heard real estate too. He's really good at. I know Howard Hughes isn't working too well, but I mean that came out of ggp and that was a massive home run yeah that my estimation that was probably the second best investment of my lifetime generation it could have been the second best investment of all uh, number one your boy uh, with with liberty serious 
Or was Sirius XM? That was actually, that was John and Greg. It's the number one, and I don't think anything will ever touch it. I, you know, I, I don't know, you know, every, yeah. every record. Francisco broken, says that too. Eric, what do you want to blow your mind? That deal was brought to DirecTV. DirecTV huh. was going to do the deal. CEO couldn't get it over the line, so he gave it to Greg and John. And Greg and John Holy were like, yeah, it's a fucking no-brainer. <laughs> yeah, like, imagine, imagine if Direct, it's serious is worth multiples of what DirecTV is worth today. I mean, that story is very similar. Why couldn't to, they get it over the line, do you know? The board didn't want to do it. The board did not want to do it. They didn't want to do it. The board said no. CEO said we should do this deal. Board said no. By the way, that's exactly what happened with Blockbuster and Netflix. Holy I don't know if you noticed, shit. but Netflix Netflix tried to get to get bought by Blockbuster. I did Blockbuster know that. passed. I haven't checked valuations recently, but I'm pretty sure that was a bad pass. That's yeah, totally that's, that was a right bad pass. Thing. Icon but had yeah, a Liberty, big part in that in Blockbuster's failure yeah. there too. Yeah, that's no, that is fair. But SiriusXM, in my opinion, is the best. But Ackman had the second best. I mean, GGP was. I mean, it was masterclass. I mean, that was will not be repeated. That was very similar to what John did originally with Liberty in the early 1990s. I mean, it was just epic. And that that was you can't take away from his brilliance. You you can take issue with. Some of the things he says or does, but he, you know the guy is brilliant. And, and by the way, I'm never going to do have any level of success in my life like that guy. Ooh, Ackman, financial. Yeah, the dude's so, public. We're allowed to say stuff of- about him. I got mad respect <laughs> for Ackman. I wouldn't. I don't talk shit about him. I would buy. I mean, I'm an Ackman fan. Actually, I don't even mind that he went on CNBC and cried. That's how much I like him. So, oh, I, you know, I, yeah, no, I, I, uh, <laughs> I never miss the CNBCs with Ackman, especially if you get Icon on with him. It's like the best. I did think he got misframed on that. People came at him for that. I don't think he was talking his book, but I'll argue that with other no, people in a either. different one. No, I don't either. I, you know, I agreed with him. Yeah, I actually think he set the bottom personally, but but we'll see. Yeah. You know, we'll see. Well, maybe maybe we'll find out if uh, maybe that'll get retested. That would be wild. The Zell thing, you know, to, to wrap that up. So I'm I'm in there. Numbers are tanking. Neil is let go. I mean, it, you know, it's a really shitty deal, but the the board let him go. They put Theo in there. I mean, we interviewed so many people to come in and it, the economics people wanted was like, it was the worst. So when a business starts that kind of decline, what happens, right? So everybody panics. So the worst thing that happens, and you can't see this from the outside as an analyst, but when you get inside, you can see it. And it's pretty fucking clear. The best people leave. They're yeah. gone. Like the smartest people who are there, the people who you really don't want to leave, they are oh, gone. Yeah. Why? Because they're great. And they've got 50 other options waiting for them, right? So who stays? The worst people. Yeah. The people that have no other options. The people who you really don't want to stay, who you would have liked to fire. But now you have to have somebody answering the phone. So you've got the worst people around. I mean, and this is this is a generalization, yeah. right? There's not everybody. I mean, there were some really good people that stayed. But the on average, the smart people go when things get really, really tough. That's what happened at Zale when things were getting tough. The smart people left. And they left... Before things got really tough and it crashed, once a crash happened, nobody left because everybody's like, you know, wanted a job. But then when it recovers, the smart people leave. And so you start thinking like, oh my God, how am I going to replicate this? How am I going to get this business back on track? I don't have the right people. I don't have the right inventory. It, it was so bad. It was like an epic fire drill of nothing was working. Luckily for me, and this is why people matter, Theo, his background, he was a human relations, human resources guy. Uh, for Tommy Hilfiger, some really good brands, worked in private equity. I never would have thought an HR guy could be the CEO of a company, although it does make sense, especially if it's a people-based organization, yeah. which Zale is a jewelry store, but it, it, the jewelry requires selling. It requires a lot of people, right? So he became CEO, and that guy single-handedly with his CFO and his COO, his head merchandiser, 
They just systematically turned that business around. They got the inventory right. They needed money, right? We needed to repay some debt. So what, you raise equity? To get the- that fucking sucks, man. Then you get diluted. Your share buyback gets reversed at the lows. This is where my brilliance killed us. I mean, this is where my brilliance just killed the whole thing. If we would have had that money, and this isn't totally fair because, you know, you yeah, never know. Monday morning you know, quarterbacking yourself. That, I do like I know, how you beat yourself up, though. It's a good lesson. It's good the lesson, lesson learned. Yeah. You know, it, it, what we should have done, we should have given up. I should have given up some upside for some conservatism yeah. in a business that, you know, frankly, like when things go bad, they go really bad, you know? So conservatism matters. And by the way, you learn like, you know, debt duration matters. So when, when, when Charter puts up their, you know, 12 year average duration, it's like, that's terrific. Know, that's man. an asset in my view. That's not a Dude, liability. You, that's an asset. But, the way that they manage, no, the way they manage it's, leverage it's and liquidity, it's yeah. like watching yep. like um, a symphony work. It's incredible. Yeah. They do an, an amazing job. I, I, you know, hats off to them. And you, I didn't understand or appreciate the importance of that until it was staring me yeah. in the face. And then you learn at that moment, that's all that matters, right? Your liquidity is all that matters when it starts to matter. We had some very tough conversations. Point is, Theo pulls it out. I don't know, frankly, I don't even know how he does it, but he pulls it out with his team. They get comps stabilized. We go to Golden Gate Capital, actually, is the one who gave us a $150 million term loan at 15% Ooh. plus warrants oh. that I think struck at like two bucks or something that took 40% of the equity. Yeah. So oh, what a monster that might deal be, for them. If you find somebody from Golden Gate, by the way, that's your third that might best, be their deal. best deal of all time. <laughs> <laughs> it might be the best deal of all time. Took it from me. Yeah, Thank you very much. Sucks. Yeah. So they, they gave us the money and then they orchestrated it now. You know, obviously, like my boss at Breeden hates me, right? Because it's like you're thought you were a genius. Turns out you're an idiot. And I was like, well, I, you know, I'm not sure either. That's one resulting, absolutely. But so it was fine. I'm stay, stay employed there, and it, I get some other investments in the book. Burger King being one of them, actually. Before is that um, how you know before, Francisco? You're, you no, have overlap like crazy. Uh, that's what I told him. He actually found me, and huh. uh, I probably through Formula One or something, or maybe I, I don't remember. I think it, he found me, but but it was, we were we were talking through DM, and it was like I was like Francisco, we're the same person. Yeah, I mean, we're literally the same exact human being. Dude, it's he's like a good analyst. I like him. Twitter accounts. Yeah, he's, he's a very sharp. Guy. Yeah. Anyway, they get sell on the track, and it, and my firm got out all of their money back plus ten percent, but it took them eight years, oh, yeah, seven years. I mean, it's unbelievably inefficient. If I wouldn't have been so aggressive or or pushed them to be aggressive, I think they might have gotten the thirty plus. I mean, that dilution I think is what ended up with the stock being in the twenties and not in the thirties. Hmm. So I think the original underwriting wasn't terrible. I got you know, punched in the face on the recession, but then I just got. I got aggressive and that, that was a mistake, a huge mistake. You know, a reason that like I think we connect as people and why I've really enjoyed getting to know you is like when I watch you tell that story, I can actually see the pain on your face. Yeah. yeah you know, like, hurts. yeah, it no. And, and I can tell that it's for the right reasons too. Like you don't like that people lost their job and that like, I mean, it, no. it's like a human feeling, right? And that's what I appreciate right. about, you know, talking to you. You know, forget QVC for a second. You know, let's say I lose 10% of my net worth. Like, who gives a fuck, yeah. right? Like I'm rich, I'm fine. Yeah, yeah. Don't worry about me. Don't worry about Greg. What I worry about is the people, you know, working in St. Petersburg at HSN. I worry about yeah, the, the people in Westchester. Like, shit like that. That's their job, yeah, no you doubt. know? And I, and I want them to, there's a, a good insight I learned in 2013. It's brought a lot together. So that, you know, I learned don't invest in Tory, right? I learned it for, from Zale that when you go into a recession, a real recession, when you go into a recession that the Fed isn't just pumping, you know, massive amounts of capital into everybody's lap every day. When you go into a real recession, 
an average business becomes toxic. Yeah. And that's, that's what happens, right? And a great business becomes average, right? So yeah, that makes sense. If you own great businesses, all of a sudden they're average business, you own some average businesses, all of a sudden they're incredibly toxic. And you learn in my mind, when I said, don't go on the board, what I mean is if you're going to buy average businesses, you want liquidity because if it goes bad, you don't want toxic, stay away from toxic, at least no, I agree. Not investment advice. No, I agree. <laughs> but you don't want toxic. It's it's just not like life is too short. And what but I would say, I the other side of that, man, is like, if you're going to get concentrated in average businesses, like, I would think a lot about that because Graham and Schloss and all those guys had 30, 35 bets at all times. 10 right. on average businesses is playing a freaking dangerous game, if you ask me. In my mind, I can't own an average business unless I know the guys and I like the guys. And again, your duration is incredibly short because I don't know. I can't divine the future. I have no idea. Yeah. And, and that's it really for any business. I mean, some businesses I feel like, yeah, do I think QVC is going to be around three years from now? Yeah, I'm making that bet pretty big. And I, I have a lot of confidence in that. But five years, like, I don't know what it will look like. Yeah. I mean, by the way, that's not to say it'll be terrible. It could be amazing. Like, that's the other leg of the thesis is, look, if what they're telling you, and I trust them, and I believe they know what they're talking about. If what they're telling you is that the business was on track, that there was just so much disruption from the integration of H in their business, and they took their eye off the merchandising ball, now it's back on. And now they got a shot in the arm from COVID, and they can get back on track. That's not a crazy thesis. Like It's not crazy to think that that actually could be true. And I do think they would know. So if you think that's true, I mean, then this is going to be one of the better investments I make in my life. Yeah. I don't know if that's the case, but it's out there. You know, it's possible. Yeah, well, that's uh, what I think we connected over, right? It's like, okay, well, both of us saw duration. We both saw a capital return, and we can both fathom an upside, but like, neither of us is underwriting it or pitching it. It's just like, no, I think it could exist. No. Yeah, it's it, well, it does. I mean, so uh, I'm going to pronounce his name wrong. Masbus and Michael had a Mabosin, I think, sir. Mabosin. Come on Sorry. now. It's okay. He's, I might have messed it up too. Again, key brain. He put out a research piece that was just sent to me by uh, Shai Destardi from 1999, talked about option value and putting option value as a component of business value. I think it's a very useful idea. It's hard, but I think it's useful. So the way in my mind with QVC, the way I think about it, and, and really with these little liquidations we were talking about, really what they are is they're an average return of capital with free options. And the options are all worth something. Yeah, and they have How like no implied hard. volatility in them. If you exactly. think about it from an option perspective, right? We're fucking sass. It's like all options and they're all out of the money and everybody thinks That's that right. they don't exist. And it's like, guys, I understand it. valuations yeah. on, on out of the money options. And, and right. I get very uncomfortable with that. And so- but, but I with prefer Q, selling those than buying them. That's correct. Same. With Q, my view of it is like I'm getting a business and a return of capital and I'm getting a free option that in fact, what they're saying is true. And, and that's free. So it doesn't really matter what it's worth. But I happen to think that could end up being worth a lot. So, and we'll see. I don't yeah. think we'll know the answer to that until this time next year. I think we'll, I think we'll have a better indication in 12 months. I don't think we'll really know the answer probably for a couple of years, but it, it's not a 0% probability. I don't know what the probability is. Maybe 20%, 50%. It's not zero. Yeah. So, all right. So you're talking about duration and cash coming back. So how do you get into formula one? Cause that is not a cash cash coming back thesis. Well, no. So I think your, your Texas morning put it perfectly is Formula One more of like a venture capital kind of investment or can you actually underwrite it? So if anybody's interested in this, anybody can can get it for free. I wrote Formula One up on Vic in May of 2017. 
I used to be a Vic guy. I'm no longer because I just didn't have enough good ideas to keep my membership live. But I wrote it up under Clark, uh, my middle name, Clark0225. You can get the whole thesis there. And I think that's aged okay. I don't think it's been that, not aged terribly. So when I first saw Formula One, so I own Liberty Media, right, as, as the when they did their bust up into the three trackers between Liberty Sirius and Liberty Media and Liberty Braves. I sold the Braves. I kept media because it was described to me as, as Greg's sandbox. That's that's the way John talked about it. Well, it's, let's see. It's like a, a SPAC, yeah. right? They're like, let's see what Greg can do. And so I kept Liberty Media and I saw the Formula One deal. And I listened to their presentation and I was like, we're paying what twenty times EBITDA for this? Like what? You know, and then and then it's by the way, it's one of my one of my friends uh, who's on Twitter under BWK Capital it hit me up. He, he wasn't on Twitter at the time, but he hit me up and he was like, "Have you seen Greg's Twitter? It's a picture of Greg at Formula One." So I, I'm thinking like. I'm like, oh my God, did Greg just buy like, you know, an NFL football team, like for just ego rights? Yeah. Like, what are we doing? Yeah. You know, and I'm like, oh my God. So I saw that and I'm like, I'm like, I don't know. I, you know, I like to think that I give them the benefit of the doubt every time. And it, the truth is I don't because I just can't get them out of my own way. But so I, I see that and I'm like, oh man, what are we doing? I see the multiple. I'm like, I don't get it. So I, I smartly talk my boss into selling every share of Liberty Media at 20, right? Genius, right? So then, so what happens? Like two days later, the stock goes to thirty. He's like, "What the fuck did you tell me to do?" And I was like, "I don't know. I, you I really me for don't." My judgment. Not, who's listening to me at this point? Who is listening to this guy? So, so everybody's going to ask at the podcast, like, "Why do we follow that guy?" Oh, I love it. So I tell him to get out of it, and so he's like, "Well, I think you missed it." And I'm like, "Well, I, I obviously did miss it. There's something that's going on that I don't understand." So and I was like, "That's fine." He's like, "Well, you you know those people. Why don't you figure it out?" And so. What happens? Well, and, and by the way, my old boss is uh, buddy Chase Carey. So he kind of, yeah, I know. It's like, I, I can't believe it. Wait, no. did you just say that so you know happened? Chase Carey? I met him several times and really like him, but uh, oh, it's my stash. old boss who, so, so uh, Chase was on the, went to college, same school that my boss went to and they were both on the board at different times. They were both on the board of the, of the college. Okay. And so they, they know each other that way. So I, I'd say, they know each other. I'd like to say they're friendly. I think they're friends, but I, and I met Chase through him. And Chase is just—I mean, he's exactly what you would expect Rupert Murdoch's number two to be. I mean, he's perfectly even keel. He's Steve Mailboss describes him as the best negotiator he's ever seen, huh. which was critical at uh, critical at Formula yeah, One. Yeah, he set time. that entity up. Yeah, and he, by the way, he's just the, the nicest, sweetest guy. I mean, it, you know, I actually think Ross Braun is probably the nicest, sweetest guy, but Chase is right there. I mean, they're just good. People. Does Chase say so, you know a lot if you're talking to him in private? Does he always say you know? Because that's the thing on the conference calls that drives me yeah, nuts. Yeah, no. No, he does not. Yeah, when he's in a monologue, thing. you know comes up all the time yeah. uh, in private. The conversations are much better when it's when it's one-on-one. I like him. Um, I just sometimes I'm like, oh, no, Chase, great. I don't know. I'm trying to find <laughs> yeah, out. I don't know. I'm waiting for you to tell me. <laughs> that's right. Like, please. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. You're not wrong about that. You're not wrong. So that is, that is it's observant. It's difficult to listen to. It's, it's like for me with Tom Rutledge. I love Tom, but their calls are so boring. Yeah, They're I like, agree. Oh, my God. Like, I want to fall asleep. I actually I'm like, like oh Winfrey more. I, I love listening yeah, to Winfrey. Great. I think he tells the story Win- perfectly. Actually, the best presentation, I think it was from like a leveraged finance conference in 2017 or something. We just talked about wireless in my mind. That's the most, it's the best presentation Charter has ever given. The best presentation I've ever heard on Charter was John, but then the best, you know, presentation I thought Charter gave is from when Chris was discussing the, the wireless strategy. And I was like, that's just very, 
cogent. It's yeah. just that just lines up well. It's well thought out. It's very rational. Yeah, that people want to know Charter. I would read Winfrey's. I just I think he lays it out a little bit better. Yeah. But anyway, back to Formula no, he's, One. Winfrey's great. So so in Formula One, I, I just sort of sit there stewing on the fact that I'm an idiot and I sold it at twenty. It's at thirty. They do. Uh, Liberty does a primary offering in the summer, early 2017, something like that. And they, the key for me, why I could invest in it was this offering document when they did their primary offering. For the very first time, they laid out what the opportunity was. I mean, you could pick it out. They didn't say this is the opportunity. They, but they, they laid out very simple. We have global audience, cumulative global audience of a billion views, and you can put that up. That's second only to the NFL in the world. It's bigger than Premier League. It's bigger than the NBA. It's bigger, bigger, you know. So they have 500 million fans, global audience of a billion. And then you can compare, we can get, it's publicly available, uh, revenue data, not only for Formula One, but from Premier League, from the NBA, from NFL. And you can see pretty quick, if you take the amount of revenue generated at Formula One by a global audience of a billion, it's about $1.50. That's how it worked out, or maybe $1.35. My thing will have this. If you compare that, the next highest is the of a major global sport is the NFL, and it's closer to six dollars, right? And then you look at the NBA. The NBA is eight dollars, right? Premier League, eight dollars. So now, in my mind, when I when you just take nothing else, Formula One makes for everybody who watches it makes a dollar fifty, and the NFL makes six, and the NBA makes eight. That's a huge gap. Yeah. So the question is, should that be a huge gap? Can that gap narrow? How would it narrow? You know, it, how do you explain that? Now, part of it is explainable. The, the difference between the NFL and the NBA is very explainable in my mind. One, you can't monetize the incremental viewer nearly as well, right? So if you have like the Super Bowl, you get amazing rates. I mean, the rates are yeah. huge, right? Except you have so many viewers that on a per viewer basis, they're not as good as the NBA finals, let's say, for example. You have almost as good monetization or still good monetization, but much fewer viewers. So there's a reason they have so many viewers, of course, they're not going to monetize them all that high. So that, that explains a big chunk of it. And you could say, well, Formula One's similar, right? So they have 20 this year, I think it's 18 races. They'll have, hopefully, knock on wood, I should be doing. I don't know why I did air quotes. Knock on wood. They'll have 23 races, which is the rumored calendar for next year, and 20 some odd races a year. Those are like Super Bowls, right? Every two weekends. So it probably is closer to something. It, it should have a discount, but the question is how much? Yeah. So then you go through and you ask like, okay, well, where are we underperforming? Well, a couple areas. The biggest one, the most obvious one is sponsorships. At the time, nobody had really talked about it, but now there's, I think there's a lot of research that's been done on Formula One sponsorship gaps. Even Greg's talked about it. I think a UBS left as a sponsor right when, when Liberty bought it. There's now no financial sponsor, right? There is no sponsor in banking or in wealth management even. There's, and it doesn't make sense because you know, Formula One is like, it's Rolex, right? Yeah. It's, high, it's very Some high. high it should be a wealth stuff. management sponsor. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there is no non-alcoholic beverage sponsors. We don't have a Coke sponsor, or a Pepsi sponsor. Cokes actually come in at the fringes. They're now doing sponsorship with McLaren. They're on the McLaren car, but they're not. It's pretty a insane that they don't sponsor, yeah, sponsor the brand. That's nuts. No, it's 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 true, and and so and that's the opportunity, right? And you're seeing it's taken forever. I would have thought it would have come a little quicker, but you're seeing it. Aramco, you know, it's, it's yeah. now the energy sponsor. Yep. So you're seeing new sponsorships, big ones. You know, Amazon Web Services is a global partner. They call it not a sponsor, it's a global partner, but. There are huge gaps. So, it, and and that's that's just the tip of the iceberg. There are huge gaps, and then not just global, but then all of the inventory they have regionally. So, if you watch a race, which everybody should, their Formula One is amazing. You watch races, 
you can see a lot of it's projected. So you can see projections from the camera onto your screen, which can vary based on whether you're watching the United States or China, or you're watching it in Europe, you can project. So there's all kinds of regional sponsorship, white space opportunities. There's now digital opportunities for sponsorships. There's opportunities everywhere. So that's one. Two, the broadcast revenues were a big opportunity. They have a mix of free to play, sorry, free to air and cable, you know, sky. And that mix can change. The thought was that it wasn't quite as competitive bidding. That's changed a little bit because Sky negotiated some new contracts with them that's just now stepped up. So that's improving a little bit. OTT, I always thought was an opportunity. Merchandising was an opportunity. Paddock Club was an opportunity. Yeah, I mean, Paddock Club does seem like one. I always, It's really... Sorry, I don't mean to cut you off. I just, I always wonder like, I know that they're separate entities, but the idea of marrying some of Live Nation and Formula One and like really making those like big time global sure. events, like yeah. man, that just seems to make sense to me. No, I agree. I mean, there's there's opportunities all over the place. I mean, not just like good, why the fuck doesn't Rihanna perform like the Saturday night before a race or something like that? Just make something like yeah. huge out of the weekend. Yeah, I think they've, that's they've, I don't know where it goes eventually. That's a good question. I mean. They did have they have good acts show up in Austin. So I've been to two races at Coda, Circuit of the Americas in Austin, Texas, and they've had uh, good acts there. I never actually stayed because I was so tired. I just wanted to watch the race, so I always went back and like hung out in Austin. But they did have big events around it. But you're right, there's a lot of opportunity there to improve the not uh, the on track performance or not, but improve attendance, right? So more people to show up and give them something else to do. But then also, you know, potentially some broadcast opportunities around it, like how the Super Bowl sort of broadcasts. Yeah, that's right. The, Beyonce or whatever, it's opportunity. And then you get such a such a. So I, I see all these things. Yeah, and I, I I see all these things, and I'm like, okay, so there's some opportunity. A dollar fifty might not be six, but could it be three? You know, like is that reasonable? Yeah. And it's, you just sort of model it like, and it's more of a VC. Except I do have 500 million fans, and I've got 70 years of racing, and I've got I've got a real business here. But that the simplest way to explain it and just to say, well, is it structural or is there opportunity? The simplest way to explain it is the entire business was run by one guy. Yeah. One guy. I mean, he did everything. What? One guy. And the guy's, he just turned 90. I think yesterday or the day before he turned 90. We have a similar birthday. Mine was on Monday. He just turned 90 years old. So like, okay, I, I'm sure, I mean, the guy's brilliant, right? I mean, he built Formula One, but can one guy handle a yeah, multi-billion dollar global operation by himself? Like, Seems to me like if you get a real team in there, that there's probably going to be some opportunities. So that was the whole, like, could they close the gap? Okay. So then the next two legs of it were, are people going to like it? Well, I started watching in 2017. I ended up enjoying it. Really, though, I think the game changer for Formula One was Drive to Survive. Yeah, but that I was think huge. Netflix, really, the context that Netflix gave you or gives you now for Drive to Survive is massive. Yeah. You can really see the personalities. And so... When they show up to race, you know the backstory, yep. right? You know the contract negotiations. You know, like you know who all the players are, and you can really start to buy into them. And you can see the drama. Formula One is, as Kristen Horner says, this is drama, it's pageantry. For those right? that don't know, show. it's it's very similar to Hard Knocks on HBO for the NFL, right? Like you just you get yeah, to know exactly. the people behind the brand. It's it's just phenomenally funny. I've actually gotten my friends to watch Drive to Survive, and then have now become reasonably serious Formula One fans in the United States. So in my mind, that really was sort of the game changer of like, yeah, you can get into this. I mean, it, uh, you know, I was 38 when I started watching or 37. I was pretty much college football exclusively. And now it's like, oh, I watch college football, but I'm also a pretty big Formula One fan. So I, I figured out that that brand could resonate with people and it still had opportunity to grow. So other leg of the stool. And then the, the final leg of the stool is, is sort of valuation. And, and the 
So at the time, I think the shares were $30 and they, they're 32 today. So it's basically done nothing. Um, I mean, what's great, and then it was terrible, now it's back. And the company does, before all of this work had gotten done, and there's even one more thing I forgot to talk about, which is team payments. But before all this work got done, I had them generating about a dollar a share in free cash flow. And, and now, because of a reattribution they did earlier in the year, it's about two times levered, a little over two times levered on 2019 EBITDA. But well, you know, 30 times earnings, like that's not great. It's not wildly inappropriate for you don't own a team, you own a league, right? And it's a popular league. That's, that's a whole different ballgame than owning a team. The economics are very different. And then, you know, your rights are very different. Is that wild? Well, but it's not necessarily attractive at 30 times. So then the question became, well, what happens if you get your dollar fifty to three dollars? It's like, oh, well, if nothing else changes, you'd go from earning a dollar to three dollars, right? Like you run it through, you tell me maybe these are the numbers from 2017. I don't think they've changed all that materially, but like you triple your free cash flow. Like that's not terrible. And that assumes the old team splits. And Formula One teams get about 70% of the gross profit. Formula One keeps about 30%, a little more. NFL, that's more like 50-50. So the question is, well, you know, could it go to 50-50? Well, if it grows. Sure. You know, if you double the revenue, could Liberty get a bigger share or the brand get a bigger share of the revenue? Absolutely. Now, I don't know what the new Concord Agreement, the revenue split say, says something. I don't know anybody who's read it. If you have read it, please DM me on Twitter. I'd be curious. But I haven't read it. But is it possible? Yes, it's possible. It's possible to approach that over time. Well, what happens if you get to $3 and, and, and you get half of the gross profit instead of 30% of the gross profit? It's like, well, six, $7 a share in free cash flow. And it's like, well, holy shit. Like now we're starting to talk about some very real numbers. It's an option. It's not to say that it's definitely going to happen, but it's an option. I don't know necessarily, is it priced in perfectly at 32? Is the option worth more? Well, I can tell you that if this thing only does a dollar of free cash flow for the rest of my life, it's probably going to be okay. I'm going to lose a little bit. If they do six, seven, eight, ten, you know, is this this will be one of the better investments I ever make. So it it does have more of a sort of venture capital payout, yeah. And, and it's it, it's a little more unknown if we can do it. But I I'm resting my hat on the the fact that I I think if we can just get the pie to grow, then it's going to be amazingly it's going to work out amazingly well and i I think drive to survive really is what got me into the no no this can actually grow we can grow organically if you're growing organically that's the lesson i learned at at zale if you're growing like everything all of your problems are solved right valuation problems are solved people problems are solved you know if you're growing things are good so and, and so i'm kind of hanging my hat on that. And I also just love Formula One. I just love in my mind being like, oh, I own this. Yeah. You know, when I watch it, I'm like, oh, I'm an owner. You know, it's like, yeah. like, I actually it. told my Liberty mom Because <laughs> she was like, look at for an investment. I was like, I think this is something that you'd like. I think it's got some upside and I think it's got some sex appeal. She likes that stuff. It's nice to be able to to see what you own, you know, your product that you own on TV every two weeks. It, it is nice. And you kind of they have a good race. You can feel good about it. But yeah, I'm, I'm a pretty big fan. That's more far afield from the things I normally do. Yeah. But I just I felt so compelled that I liked it so much that uh, I went big. Now, unfortunately, it's not that big because I've, I've sold a lot of stuff to buy Curate. But my, my hope is, is that I'll, I'll uh, be able to buy it back. So how do you think about like sizing it. that? If it's got more of a VC payout, would it not make more sense to have it a little bit smaller and then let it grow with yeah, the payout? That's right. Yeah, that's right. I mean, at, at one point, Charter was seventy five percent of my invested assets. I mean, it, you you can't. I don't think you could make Formula One quite. You that have big, massive right? balls. Yeah, I just you know I, I think about them all a little differently from other people. I, I I really fundamentally believe that nobody gets rich off their eighth best idea. Yeah, I just I I think that's true. Like, and I have a lot of confidence that my ideas are good ones, and most importantly, that if I'm wrong. That I really won't lose all that much. And, and if you think 
that your ideas are good and that you know you're not gonna it's not gonna be a disaster if you're wrong then you can you should swing big yeah like you know that's the you know when it's raining gold you know the biggest crime you can make is to stick out a thimble like you should go find buckets like don't try to capture little pieces really go after it so formula one can't be that i think the biggest i've ever had formula one is about 15 percent which for me is a rounding error. That's a starter position. 15% is just kind of like dipping my toe in just to see if I like it or not. Well, I really got to get up in the twenties. The thing that I think like now that I do this podcast, people ask me that not this one, but value after hours, people ask me sort of how would you get started and who would you study? And I think that one of the, what I have been grateful for is I've had a market that's bailed me out of some mistakes when I've been young and in my investment career and I think that with a more punishing market, there's a chance that I maybe would have been a little bit too big in the wrong ideas. And if you zero yep. out a, a wrong idea, it's really hard. And I benefited so much from being open on Twitter and like talking to people that when I, I pitched Francisco on Curate, you know, he said, he basically looked at me and he's like, dude, what are you doing? Like one, I think it's a really good idea, but if you're going to do this, you can't size it at 2% because right. you might as well just buy more charter. Right. right? Cause he's like the, yeah. the impact to your portfolio, if you're right, is going to be nil. And then yeah. talking to you, yeah. I mean, you know, I'm the drug pusher. Like go. No, but it did though. And I needed that. Right. And, and some of it was, giving myself the permission to actually believe in my own analysis on something that the narrative was so strong against, which goes to one of our questions. What's the most in your face narrative that you're currently ignoring, or I guess that you've ever ignored, but I got to think curate's pretty freaking high on that list. Yeah, no, I, you know, nobody likes curate. And by the way, so my history with curate tells me, I think a lot of people probably were in my seat where they saw it. They thought they liked something that nobody else liked. They thought it was a good business. They thought it was misunderstood. They own it and they got really burned, self-included. They owned it and they lost money. And so I do think people get emotional when that happens and they think that's just a piece of shit. I will never own that. Like everybody knew, you know, you're telling your clients, like, what's your best idea? And they're like, oh, you know, I really love this QVC. Everybody looks at you like you have a third eye, you know? And And so then you're like, no, but trust me, I'm smart. I really know. And then it goes against them and they look like idiots to themselves. Their clients are like, you know, who are you? Like, what are you buying QV? Everybody knows QV. It's like this, oh, you made me look dumb. And so people take that personally and then they, they just, I hate it, right? So like, Bill, don't tell me about QVC. I hate it. I will never own it. I don't care if it triples. I don't care if it, like, in my mind, that's what's happened and that's where you are. And that, by the way, that may mean it never re-rates, right? That may mean people just not liking it may mean it's forever in the penalty box. But if, if I'm right about the first part of the thesis that all my capital is coming back to me in very short order, in my mind, it really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. I mean, it, you know, it doesn't matter if the stock goes to two. If I'm right about that, nothing else matters. And then everything else is just, you know, it's gravy or it's, you know, it's efficient. Yeah. What changed it for me is to your point, because somebody had asked, he's like, well, what's different between your thesis and the, you know, this has been the same for four years. And I'd say, yeah, you're right. The difference is now there's actually the option, right? The preferred, you can do what you want, but like you got cash coming back to you now. That's right. That's a way different different ballgame than owning more and more of of an allegedly shrinking ice cube, which may be shrinking to be fair. No, it may be. I mean, we're going to find out. That's the good news. But the preferred is trading like it should. I mean, it's trading right around par, which is telling you that they have changed the cost of capital. So they took out $100 million in free cash flow. They stuck it in 8% yielding security, which is 12 and change times. That's 
put the yield on the multiple, it's 12 and change time. So they got 100 million of your cash flow now yielding eight yeah. versus the common, which is yielding 33%. That is a structural change to the cost of capital of the business. It's a structural change to your return as an investor. Like I was able to sell 100 million of my cash flow for 11 times earnings. Now I own the rest of it for, you know, I, I own the, you know, whatever 900 million or a billion that's left at three times. For me, that's great. You know, so in my mind, it, it's a very real change. And you, I'd like to say that I'm pliable, that I'm open to change. I think that's key to the investment process, like to recognize that you're wrong, but recognize also that like QVC doesn't care if I own it or not. You know, it doesn't care that it burned me in the past. It doesn't care that like this emotional stuff doesn't matter, right? It makes no difference. It also doesn't matter to me, so getting back to the, the narrative question, a dollar earned from Microsoft is worth the same to me as a dollar <gasps> earned from QVC. They're not oh, worth no. it. He did I know. Not I'm say sorry. It. I should use the oh different one. Gosh. I should use a different one. He but went if you're, if you're giving me a dollar, uh, I don't, I was, I'm sorry. Microsoft's oh. amazing. Everybody owns it. I should go after something different. Oh, I'm uh, flummoxed. You, all right. I should give myself another. If you're Formula One, right? Something else I own, right? So to attack myself. You give me a dollar from Formula One. That dollar spends exactly the same as the dollar you gave me from QVC. It spends the same. I can't buy more with a dollar Formula One gave me than I can with a dollar that QVC gave me. So I am indifferent where the dollar comes from. What matters is how many dollars I'm getting. That's the key. And if you don't know, then you should expect more quick. If you do know, then you can go out a little bit if you're going to get paid. If, if you have confidence in that option, right? If you know what that's worth, you can pay more for it. Just in a lot of businesses, Microsoft's a great example. I don't know what the Azure option is worth. I have no idea. Yeah. Some people do. I don't. You know, and That's okay. I don't, I don't feel like I need to know. I don't know if if that option is, is trading cheap today or trading expensive. What I do know is if you're putting a value on that option, or at least the, the value that the market is putting on that option, you better be fucking right, yeah. right? Or it's going to hurt you. If you're not right, you're going to lose a lot of money. So that option can't be worth zero. For QVC, the option can absolutely be worth zero. That's the difference. Yeah. So, okay, so that's one narrative. The second, the, the narrative that I that just, I see people say it and I'm like, uh oh, we're going to go to never sell. We're going to go never sell. Yeah, oh, never sell kills me. come on now. Chuck Acri is me. upset it, with you. What's up, Chuck? Thanks for listening. Uh, no, no, look, I know. No, no, no. By the way, he's earned the right to do whatever he wants. Right? Chuck's a monster. <laughs> the guy can do whatever he wants. I don't, I don't care what Chuck can say anything he wants. Nice he can do guy he wants. too. Oh, I've never met him, but he comes across as salt of the earth. I'm not going to tell Chuck he's wrong. So public markets, you have several advantages in public markets. In my opinion, it's my opinion. One of the biggest, if not the biggest, is liquidity. That matters, right? I can decide tomorrow that I'm wrong on QVC and I can get out of it. I can decide that I'm, I sold Charter. I can decide tomorrow that I was wrong selling it. I can get back in it. Coming in and mentally saying, I am never going to sell, right? In my mind, it's like you just gave up one of the biggest advantages that you had. In my mind, it's dumb, right? You absolutely can. When you see something get to a think of it like your house, okay? This is an example I use with my in-laws. They, they're not finance people, they're physicians. So I say, well, you know, how do you think about stocks? And it's like, think about it like your house, okay? You own your home. I bought a home in Fort Collins in 2018. I have an idea of what it's worth. It doesn't really matter because I'm not going to sell it. But I think probably it's worth a little bit more than what I paid for it, right? So I think about that a lot, but it doesn't make a bit of difference that, that it's worth a little bit more because I'm not going to sell it. Now, think about your home, okay? Let's say, just pick a number, round number, you paid $500,000 for your home. Now, if somebody comes and offers you five fifty. It's like, oh, okay, you know, that's fine. But I, I love it here. My wife, we got kids. Like, I'm yeah, not moving right. for fifty. You give me grand. two million, I'm out. Boom. Yeah, that's it. That's the whole. That's how I feel too, man. Point. That's how I feel too. That's the whole point. Yeah, gone. I know. Like, and, and so, by the way, by the way, like you tell me, 
you know, Charter's going to be 30 bucks and you say it's worth 20 times. I'm like, oh, you know, okay, I get it. Like, I don't necessarily think that's cheap, but I don't necessarily think it's expensive. I, I see why somebody would make that bet, yeah. right? I get it, right? You come in and you say Charter at 50 times earnings, hit the fucking bid, dude. Yeah. Run. Yeah. Run away. That's don't how walk. I feel too. Like, sell to that person, you know? And so, in my mind, I'm like, that's, you know, if you really are the never sell, and, and by the way, what, what the, the pushback on me would be, look, Mike, you're right, but my house isn't a never sell asset. You know? And this is, I treat this as a never sell asset and it's a way to just keep my psychology right. And that's fine. I have no pushback on that. That's yeah. great. You know, or helps you fish in a better you. pond, right? If you're yes, going in yes. with never sell, All maybe you're fishing things. at a better business level. I can understand All of that. those are good things. You know, and I, I came out of Zale with people matter. I came out of Zale with business models matter, which is now that Jim Meyer likes to say that a lot. And so that's what I say, but it really is saying quality, yeah. quality matters. And, that, and, that, and you're dead right. Like there's no, but there is a price, you know, 10 years ago, when you talk stocks to somebody, somebody say, well, I have a three to five year view, right? That'd be a, a very fundamental long-term guy would say, I have a three to five year view. I don't care about stimulus and I don't care about the election. I have a three to five year view, right? I feel like the narrative now isn't I have a three to five year view. It's that I'm never selling. And we talked about it. We'll see if that's right. You know, Monisha's view is like, listen, you look at the guys who have great returns, they, they have great returns because they just bought one thing and they never sold it. So you could afford to lose a lot of money in nine things and you make money, it sounds very venture capital to me, but you, you, know, you make money in the one thing and it covers all the sins. And it's like, yeah, but man, how do you know? What if all 10 of them are wrong? Like, how do you know? You know, well, I don't know. This is where I've gotten with the David Gardner research that I've done from Motley Fool. I think what he does well is he is very quick to identify these things He's an early adopter on both the product side and the stock side, and I believe he's got more of a spray and let it run approach. So yeah. over time, the the right tail will take care of his returns. But he also says, like, I will hold it to zero, right? Because there's some of these stocks that he owns that 6x and then get cut by 80% and then maybe sure. 3x. Yeah. And like, he doesn't I mean, look know. at American Tower. Yeah. It's like American Tower is a classic. Everybody thinks it's the greatest thing in the world. It's 50 cents, dude. Like, yeah. Good. If yeah, you have a psychology right. where you can hold it at 50 cents, like, then you should own it and you should never sell it because selling it at 50 cents would have been the worst decision you could have made. But I'm just saying, everybody's pushing that agenda. Yep. Or I, that's an overstatement. That agenda is getting a lot Certainly of credibility on Twitter. credence. And it, I look at that and I'm like, the only reason it's working. I think her name is Hylene Meisler. She's a sort of strategist trader that I follow because she follows Tony Dwyer. And I really love Tony Dwyer. who's a, a market strategist. And I, I don't know anything about market strategy and I don't do anything about market strategy, but I love hearing about it. You know, it's like some people like politics. I like market strategy. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, it's like uh, uh, finance born. Yeah, exactly. Helene or Hylene has this a pinned tweet. In my opinion, it's the best pinned tweet. It says, and I'm paraphrasing, there's nothing like price to change sentiment. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's what we were talking about earlier. The reason why everybody's saying never sell is because they're looking at when they sold, you know, Netflix at 300. Now it's 500. And they're like, oh, my God, I was an idiot. I should have just never sold. And it's like, maybe we'll see. Yeah. You know, it's nothing like price to change sentiment. You know, it's, the price is up. Doesn't mean you're right. Doesn't mean you're wrong. It just means the price is up. That's all it means. It does not mean anything else. It's the same with when my stocks go down. Like price, price doesn't mean anything. Ultimately, I've got to be right about the business and I've got to get my capital back. Yeah. That happens. Fine. Yeah. Uh, by the way, shout out to Jerry Cap, the leader of the never sell movement. Oh but, yeah, no, he's he's an animal. Got to like. But him. you know the way that he frames it, I think is smart. Where he said it's not about a single trial; it's about a method of life. And like, I do understand that, but I personally cannot get past what you said. Like, if somebody is going to offer me twelve hundred dollars a share for Charter, there is no way that I am not going to sell it to them. None. Yeah. And it's yeah. going to feel great when I do it. And one day, maybe I, you know, I'm sitting on a nice house, and I say, "Boy, I could add a, a little bit nicer house." But like. 
Yeah. The goal of this game to me is to get to the house. Yeah, and then like, right. you know, uh, the rest is sort yeah, of whatever. It's true. No, I, I think that's right. I, I, I would just sort of my pushback on the never sell would be at what price would you sell? Yeah. Or, or there is has there no to price? be some. Is there no price. And that that's the question. And so for me, for Charter, when in 2018, when we had the meeting of you're a fucking dope, you're dead wrong about this. The stock's down 40 percent. You're an idiot. How did you miss it? At that point, I want to say the shares were like 200 or 275, it's not 200, 275 or 300 or something down from 400. And at that point, if you would have asked me, Mike, would you sell every share based even on your numbers, which you're an optimist and your, your numbers reflect your optimism on Charter, even on that, would you sell at 600? That time when shares were 300, I would have told you, if you give me a look at 600 in the next two years, I'll sell you every share that I have. And what did I do? I sold every share that I had. Yeah. That's what I said two years ago. You know, are the numbers better? Like, yeah, but they're, it's like plus minus. I mean, I was thinking 30 and they're going to do 30, you know? So in my mind, you, you have that and what, again, it's nothing like price change of sentiment. The price goes up and you think, oh, I'm a genius. I should just keep holding this. And it's like, you know, maybe. So the books I really have enjoyed reading recently are books that talk about market cycles and they talk about like The Great Crash by Galbraith is a great book. And, you know, everybody should read it. It's written in the 50s. There's a book by Maggie Mayhar, which I talked about on Twitter called Bull. You know, it's a bull market book from 82 to, to 2004, really peaks in 99. Book from Leon Levy is there, you know, there's great books that talk about, you know, that the psychology of that market. And what happens is when prices go up, people tend to like things more. And in fact, the opposite is what should be happening. Yeah. The higher the price goes, the less you should like your house. You like your house at 500, but at 2 million, you should fucking sell, dude. Like I will be there moving your stuff out for you if somebody offers you $2 million for your $500,000. Yeah. And I, I do think when you put it in those terms, people tend to get it. But you know, in my mind, you just if the people who have are saying it, maybe they just haven't seen what happened. The answer with Zale is you should have run. But by the way, Ecolab, which I owned for a while when they bought Nalco, and I, I love that business. You should have sold that too. Like you should have sold everything in 2008. There wasn't a thing you should have owned. You should have been cash. That was the only thing that was at any value. I mean, that's a really scary time. And I, if you haven't seen it, I'm not sure you really yeah. appreciate how bad it can be. We almost um, saw it in March, and, and, but then everything got bailed out. We got close. We were, there was a day, I think maybe two days. I'm getting this from web. I didn't physically see it, but I did talk to some guys at Oak Tree on Formula One debt, actually, and they were talking about it. They're buying Formula One debt at like 80 cents on the dollar. Yeah, man, the debt blew out. Blew out. Yeah, it blew out. I was buying Transdime north of 11%. I was like, all right. Amazing. I mean, this is a pretty Amazing. good business to pay this Makes kind sense of- to me. Yeah. Makes sense to me. Get a senior position, get a double-digit return on your money. Like, sounds good. Now it get looks stupid. Back. Yeah, no, exactly. So I, it sounded like there was a day or two where it looked like this is going to crack. Yeah. And then, you know, what happened, it, you know, Fed comes out and said, it literally is not going to happen. So, like, take cracking off your, we will buy high-yield bonds. Yeah. Boom. Like, okay, you know, what do you do with that? You just start buying. That's what you do with that. You just start, you, that's when I flipped from being like, oh my God, this sucks to like, oh, you got to own everything. That's and, what I missed. And, 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 up was, and people said it and I, I just, I don't know. I, I had bought quality and I stayed in quality and I, I guess, I don't know if I'm at it myself or if I think that was the right thing to do. I mean, it obviously was wrong, but I still think I'd do it again if I had the shot. Well, you know that I tell you, it's not right or wrong. And this is, you know, I, I do take issue with people who say, well, this was clearly the right decision. It's like, it's not about the right decision, but the right decision for you. Yeah. That's the key. It's your psychology. And when people talk about circle of confidence, what it really means is it's not just what you know, it's what you can handle. And if you don't know yourself well enough to know whether you can handle or something, just don't do it. Just don't do it. You won't be, you will not be worse off. Like you tell yourself like, oh, I missed it. I missed it. There's some things that I've missed and that kills me. But the vast majority of stuff, like 
I don't give a fuck that I miss SaaS. Like, who cares? You know, maybe I should have had a view on Amazon, but I would have missed. You know, you would have told me about it. I would have been like, I don't know. I, you know, I would have missed it. Don't beat myself up about that stuff. It's the things like I know that if QVC worked after we talked about it and I didn't own it in size, I'd kill myself. Yeah. Like, I have known this business for a long time. I know the people. I know what they're doing. It makes sense. Yeah, it was in You've my got wheelhouse. a free option in there. It's, in, it's right down the middle for me, man. And it doesn't matter to me if it's down the middle for everybody else. It's down the middle for me. That's the key. Yeah. And, I, and if, if it doesn't work, it's like, yeah, okay, stuff doesn't work. It doesn't work all the time. You know, I have plenty of losers. So I talked to my mom about that, and she's like, what's our stock doing? I'm like, mom, it's a business. Like, just, yeah. you know, <laughs> people are inside. Yeah. They're selling things. We need to work on conversion. Worry about it that way. I think, um, well, you know. It's interesting when you're public. No, the answer in the short term is what happens with Q is it will be interesting to see what they do say on earnings next week. And if that even matters, by the way, it may matter. It may not. I don't know. But in the short term, what do you in, think in they could mind, say that would make anyone believe anything in that entity? Like this, I don't think know, anyone I don't even know what would That's make a it catch question. a bid. They could come out and release everything and people would be like, all right, this one time, you know, yeah, so the, okay. the smartest people who short stocks, what they tell me is they say what you really, you'll know you have a good short thesis because in your mind, you're thinking, what can they say that gets the long only to sell it? Yeah. Right? It's not about what happens, right? What happens is irrelevant. What matters huh. to you if you're short selling is the big holders selling, right? Because that's what's going to push the fucking stock down, right? which is what you need if you're short selling, obviously. So they'd say, well, what's going to get those guys to sell? So let's invert this, right? What's going to get a long only to come in and say, you know what? I got it. Nothing, man. They no, won't. They I won't no do it. <laughs> I don't know. I really don't that's know. I don't why, think it is the way they do it. That's why I think of it like there's only so much money that Maffei can plow back into the stock before it must go up. Well, that's that's right. I mean, I in all honesty, I think about the only thing you could say that would get people to say, oh, okay, you were right, is if they announced a sale, right? If yeah. they announce that they're selling the business, then yeah, okay. Then it's, it's going to be in your face that there's a private market value for this thing that's north of where do you think the stock is now? Four, four and a half times, five times EBITDA, yeah, yeah. something like that. I, I so thought you were saying share price. I was like, well, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I don't want to check on this call because all of a sudden my face will just get really scary. Yeah, we get and sad like, again. My eyes will sink in. You know, like, people will start to watch price uh, driving narrative. Yeah, exactly. No, it, I, I'm intentionally not looking because I'm a. I'm sure it's terrible, and b. I'm sure I just want to focus on. It. But yeah, that's about the only. thing. I haven't worked a lot since that. You know, I, I've tried to, but one, coming down off of sort of a deal is sort of hard for me. And two, yeah, I sort of haven't wanted to be around things as much because I don't really want to see what's going on for a while. It's been nice. There are certain days that I have no idea what the market does. Yeah, that's good. I mean, that's that's part of what I've been doing out in the garage, you know, putting together carpentry projects. It's just staying away. It's it's hard to do. And, and I don't have any... My LP is one. It's my wife. Yeah. I, I don't have even people to respond to. She doesn't even care. She has no idea day to day. And you know, we did it part of it for me too, and not being able to care as I know that I've actually had a pretty decent year going in September. And, and of course, my October has just been a complete debacle. But even with that, it's still a pretty decent year. My hope and expectation when I underwrite something is I'm shooting for 10% a year. That's what I'm shooting for. I, I don't know that I'm going to be able to do it over time, but I've been shooting for it. And when I cross that threshold and get comfortably over it in a year, I feel like, okay, I can press it a little bit and see how it goes. And if, and even if I land it, you know, if it cost me all that performance, like cost me, if I, when I was going into the end of September, I think I was up something like 16 or 17. And so I'm, uh, that's part of the reason why I'm like, dude, I could lose 10% yeah. on, on QVC and I, I'd still be up five. And in a year with COVID with, you know, unemployment, and I was, I'm up 5%. I'd be like, ah, what are you, I'm a hero. Yeah, man. So I, I don't mind so much pressing it, but it, 
it does give me the ability to kind of step back and just say, like, just don't focus on it. Like you're, it's the price isn't going to tell you if you're right. That's right. That's the key. It's the key. And that's actually the distinction. People call it growth versus value. In my mind, it's a distinction of, are you a fundamental analyst? And as part of that, you care about what the price you're paying for something, or are you a, a momentum? And I want to use the word, people hate it when I do this on, on Twitter, they get really offended, but the word is speculation, right? Yeah. And that, and it's not a bad word, by the way, it's, there's that, uh, Phil Correa wrote a great book called The Art of Speculation, which anybody should read. It's a great book. I've read it. I enjoyed it. I speculate often, you know, when you, when you like, that's what horse track betting is. That's like, it's speculation. Like you don't know, you know, it's not a, it's not fundamental analysis. Fundamental analysis gives me the ability to step away from prices. If I was purely speculating, prices are the only thing that would matter. And when I when it turns out that somebody isn't in fact going to pay me more than what I paid for it, I need to get out. You know, fundamental analyst, I can step back and say, no, I underwrote a business, right? The business yeah. is what I own. I don't own the stock price. I own the business. And so I can step back. The price won't tell me whether I'm right or wrong. The business results and the management's capital return will tell me if I'm right or wrong. And that you know, the stock could go, you know, to $3, it could go to $30. Like, it, you know, I, I, I'm hoping for the latter, but, you know, it, it doesn't, like, it's the business and the management team that's going to decide whether I'm right or wrong. It's it's not, it's not the price. That's, it's hard for most people to do. I think that's why most people actually just prefer the speculation route because it's so much easier, like, Huru, you know, it's so much easier. You just like, look, this business is growing. I bought it. It's up 20%. I sold it. Like, Jesus, like, that's easy. You know, just do that, you know? I can't knock it. You said this and you're, it's absolutely right. Don't knock it. It's just the strategy and it's working right now. Yeah. Maybe it'll keep working. I think that there is a legitimate argument to be made. I mean, DeModeran made it in his last post or whatever. I, I didn't think the post was fantastic, but that some people that sort of pray to the value church or the fundamental church or whatever, I think it's the only way to make money. And I don't. I guess what offends me sometimes is when I see guys that I think, you know, like, look, if you really want to buy Snowflake and you're really going to own it for 10 years, then we can talk about sort of what the economics look like 10 years from now. But like these guys have bought Fastly and now they're capitulating, you know, like, get out of here. You're not long term. And I don't yeah. even care. Be a short term guy. No. Just don't tell me yeah. you're long term because that's then you're fake. I think for me, number one. A million percent would just echo that. I mean, everything you said there is right. The thing for me is, it's not that there's only one way to make money, but as I look around and you look at how the wealthiest people have made their money, yeah. they've made it a few ways, right? So you're either incredibly intelligent and you started a software business, right? You started a Facebook, you started Microsoft, you started, like if you did that, like hats off, that is a way to get incredibly wealthy, starting a business or investing in real estate is a way to get wealthy. I've seen a lot of people who have been fundamental investors become you know really wealthy over time and of those i've seen more of them become do it in a way that's sort of concentrated or at least they did it with a few bets as opposed to a lot of bets in general walter schloss the great example of somebody who went the opposite route and it still worked out very well for him but what you don't see is a lot of great examples of speculators doing very well over long periods of time yeah. so when you look at you know the forbes 400 show me the speculators like I, you know in, by the way you can point to some there are some like Soros, I think is a pretty good example. I think a lot of what he does, you know, he's famous for currency speculation. That's what that is, by the way. When you're buying currencies, it's a, it's a speculative bet, right? A relative speculative bet. And he's made a lot of money doing it. So he's one example, right? But show me 10, show me 20. It's not that you can't do it. It's just that I don't see it as much as I see the fundamental investors. Now, that could change, right? This is the trailing Forbes 400. There could be a different Forbes 400 when I hit my 70s. But 
know, for me, I just look at how people have made their money. It's it's kind of more the fundamental side. It's it's less the speculation side, but that doesn't mean it'll be that way forever. And you know, if somebody has figured out a way to crack the code, I mean, you read the the Jim Simon's book. You know, it's like the guy figured out a way to crack the code. If you crack the code, hats off, dude. I wish I could. If if yeah. I knew how to do that. I would notice dime curing. I'd just do that. <laughs> yeah, no like, doubt. No doubt. That's all I would do. But I don't know how to do that. So yeah. that's off the table for me. That's what I have gotten to the point where I enjoy a lot of the Twitter feeds that I perceive to be more momentum y. And I've started to listen when they say, like, no, we look at valuation and stuff like that. I mean, like, Puru is a guy that I used to dismiss a lot. And then he did a podcast and I listened to him and I was like, okay, I, we're just playing different games. And right. like, I sort of appreciate the game he's playing. I know I don't know how real or not his results are. He says they're real. I have no reason to not believe him. Sure. You know, yeah. people want to get into it. I, it's not the, I'm not going to waste my time getting into that. Who cares? Yeah, that's, that's how I feel. Who cares? I guess that once I understood what they were doing in general, some of these accounts, and then once I just sort of got comfortable with myself, I was able to enjoy sort of like learning what I can from them and, you know, my way of looking at it is if I can learn a little bit something about these businesses now, maybe I'll get a bite at the apple down the road and yeah, that well could may. be awesome. No, but, you very well may. I mean, I, I do think the time that we're in is it's, this is time to sit and reflect and learn. I don't think this is the time to be aggressive. Personally. Yeah, I agree. So I, I think that strategy is, is the right one is it, this is a time to, re- there's always something to do. It's just sometimes that is reading and listening and being quiet and paying attention it, sometimes it's not being active and, and that's kind of where my head is at the moment. You know, that, that can obviously change at any time. I think that thought and strategy is right. Just read, listen, you make it a bite. I mean, there's a price on Visa where that's the only stock I would own. Yeah. You know, that, that it's not, it's not a hate of the business. It's just a, I don't understand well enough to pay the current price. It's the same with Nike. I don't understand it well enough to pay the current price, but at a price, I don't have to understand it that well. Like I'm probably going to do fine. Yeah. I think studying and paying attention right now makes a lot of sense. I think that's kind of where we and are. And what I used to think Nike had to be a curate's multiple to have that statement, the statement that you just made make sense. And what I've realized is that, you know, you can buy class A assets at class B minus prices and have them yeah. fit that asset, have them fit the quality, like what you were just trying to say, right? Like yeah. waiting for the class A asset to trade at just like bargain basement. I mean, maybe you get that in 09, but you're not, I don't think that's a reasonable strategy to invest in. If that makes sense. No, it does. I mean, so a couple of thoughts. One, I, I just something is that, like, as I thought about doing, you know, doing this podcast with you, I was thinking about like, what insights have I gained? You know, I, I was on the street for 15 years and what did I learn that I felt like was insightful or helpful that might help other people, right? So one of the things, so Zale is a good topic, but one of the other things I got from KKR in 2013, they used to do every other year, they used to do analyst days and then the off years, they would do like teach-ins for their investors. So I was invested in the, not as an LP in a KKR fund, but I invested in KKR, you know, the, the management company and the promote public stock. So I went to one of their teach-ins in 2013 and they, I don't think it was a slide, but they had one of their portfolio managers up talking about how for since like 1986 or something, they've been doing deals and they, they put every metric of the deals that they did up on a screen, up in a, in a spreadsheet, up on a screen and said, what drove the performance? So when something worked, when something didn't work, what were the factors? And they said, we boiled it down to one. I was like, that's great. Because one thing I can remember, <laughs> I can't remember four. Give me one. That's what I'm asking Give for. I'll remember. <laughs> and this is a, a bit of a paraphrase, but the guy said the number one factor for our returns up to 2013 is growth. 
is the number one factor. And what they said is it's you don't need massive. It's not 30% growth. It's growth above inflation. So think yeah. of it as 200 basis points above inflation. If you're growing 200 basis points above inflation, that resonated with me because I saw that at Zale. And in my mind, I'm thinking if we could have just grown rather than people would have stuck around. They would have felt like I've got some upward mobility, right? Versus if you're shrinking, I have to cut costs. I have to fire people. That's the best people leave. It's, it's virtuous, right? When you're growing and you're growing above inflation and I... I don't really care so much if it's price or volume, depending on the business in the industry. But obviously, I think volume generally would be considered to be a better one because people always think like with Charter, you got the price in your back pocket. If you need it, you get the right business. That's why I Regardless, prefer Charter to, to Comcast, right? Agreed. Like I just like I the strategy more. But that growth above inflation- I mean, that's one reason. It's just so logical that that's your driver of returns when you own a business for five or seven years, right? And you can, there's studies, there's a- podcast from Invest Like the Best from the summer of 2018 from a guy called Jason Karp who ran Torbalon. He's a, a friend of a friend that invested in Q Kitchen. So he, he talked a lot about you know how growth solves a lot of sins, right? You can overpay, and this is a monger thing, so you can get it from, you can overpay, and if you grow, eventually you'll grow your way out of that problem, yeah. right? Now, that has a limit, and we can talk about the limit, and I can tell you why I, I think people are missing where the limit is, but Forgetting that for a second, growth is incredibly important. And so that was one of the lessons that I took out that I got from KKR. So in general, if you're underwriting something, I think you would prefer for growth. And as I'm giving this to you, so this is going to require an edit. I'm like, I had this whole train of thought on why I wanted to get the like growth conversation out and then sort of go back to the conversation we were just having, but I just totally lost the space. Where we just where I started off, I, I went on the non sequitur for KKR, but I was going to bring it back, and I'm just now what were we talking why I was about? Bring that back to. Yeah, I did, I did it to you too. We were so enamored with growth solves all manner of. That's sense. right. That's right. Listen, you talk quality, and quality matters, and and so to your point about buying in the dip earlier. Oh, we were talking about multiples and how you can't, yeah, you can't have a like waiting for the A class to trade at C class oh, prices yeah. is yeah. not, yeah. So I became a GARP investor, which people don't use that term anymore. Now they say it's business quality. It's essentially GARP. But there is an upward bound to what I'm willing to pay yeah. for something that's great. And it's simply because I, I know I'm not smart enough to know for sure that I can pay the higher price and still get bailed out. And I, I think people talk about- mm, You're sounding like Buffett. I know. Don't be surprised. I've, I've read so much about that guy. It's probably I just adopted. But like, so then everybody says, well, it's no problem because- not only can I grow my way out of it, look at my returns on invested capital. Look yeah. At my returns on invested capital. These are so amazing. Like, look at the business returns on invested capital. I'm like, wait a minute. Like, we can start to turn this into media. Like, wait a minute. Can you invest all of the yes, capital man, that you're yes. generating that's at that the, rate? That's 100%? the question. Are you How, sure? What percentage are you of sure? the capital can you reinvest I, at that rate? Yes. I, I'm not sure. I, I don't I don't know. I don't know. And so now, okay, so you run your beautiful model. You're like, I own it for 20 years and I reinvest all my capital at 40%. And look, I can pay 500 times earnings and I still make more money than if you paid 10 times earnings and you only reinvested at seven. And I'm like, thematically, you are right. Now, show me the company that for 20 years can reinvest all of that. Or that even half, return. dude, even half. And then, like, okay, okay, so now do this exercise. Run it with half. Yeah. What happens? You get smoked. Yeah, your, val- yeah, your valuation 25% like crazy. It get, you get smoked. No doubt. Like it, the, the outcomes are wildly different yep. when you can only invest half of the capital over 20 years than when you can invest all of the capital at those rates in 20 years. Yeah, and so extrapolating early years into the late years is a great way to get killed. And that's why I get panicky because I don't know. And so, no, so now, okay, so now let's let's parlay that into media. 
Okay. So I'm not, a, I'm a media guy, but I don't really understand how media works. I mean, I, I get the moving pieces, but I don't, yeah. I can't divine the future of media. So it makes me very nervous when your business model is aggregating eyeballs to sell advertisements to, right? Forever. That It's an amazing business, by the way. The model's great. It works. The problem I have is I don't know where the eyeballs are going. Yep. So 50 years ago, the eyeball was all a newspaper, right? All a newspaper. And, and by the way, at that time, you could just bank on it always being a newspaper. There were no other mediums. Now, mediums are, are popping up every single day. So if I'm Facebook and I have all of this advertisement revenue, and it's all coming because I aggregate these eyeballs on Facebook, and I, I successfully acquire was it WhatsApp, and then they acquire you know, Instagram yeah. as well, and they're successfully trans- I don't know what the next one is going to be. So what I have to do, I, I know there's going to be a next one. That I am confident in, that it will not stay Facebook and it will not stay Instagram for 30 years. There will be another one, whether it's TikTok or I don't know. But in my view, the, the eyeballs are going to keep transitioning. They've been transitioning. They're going to keep transitioning. It's going to keep changing. I don't know where they're going to go. So if you're Mark Zuckerberg, what do you do? I think the right strategy, which is the one they're doing, is you just buy everything. Or just copy. Buy it all. Or copy it. Yeah. yeah. And by the way, copying sometimes works. Sometimes it doesn't. You know, I, I personally, I think you're better off just trying to figure out what's going to work and buy it. But I guess that's a long-winded way of saying, if that's your strategy of like, yeah, I get it. There's nothing recurring about the eyeballs that are coming to my website. They might go to somebody else's website. I don't know. By the way, 50 people are going to hit me on Twitter and talk about what a fucking dope yeah, I am because are. I don't really they understand. They're going to nail that's me on gonna this. That's going to happen. They're going to be like, no, you don't <laughs> understand because and – and my answer to that is you're right. I don't understand. Yeah. That's what I'm actively saying is I don't understand. But my speculation would be that they're going to have to buy a lot of shit or invest a lot of money into things to try to maintain that next edge, right? Whatever the next thing everybody gravitates to. So I don't like that business model. The reason I don't like it is because I don't know what that means, right? I don't know what are you going to have to pay for the next thing? Is the next thing like Snap doesn't sell to you? Are they going to take over the world? I don't know. And so I, you know, I, or a fan I trust can't let you or whatever. And, and I can't comfortably tell you that every one of those deals they do is going to be an Instagram or a WhatsApp or even one out of five. And so that they, they're they going to average a 40% return on invested capital. Those. What if they average a five? Now run your model with a five and tell me Devil's what that Devil's advocate like. would say they only need one, right? But Yeah, no, yeah. And, they, and they may get it. Yeah. But I'm saying when you buy it, they have to. Like no that's, that's my point. You have to get it. You yeah. can't, if you don't get it, you're dead. So that's just a model where I look at it and I'm like, I understand why people like Twitter as a stock. I get it. You know, and it makes sense because it's a really cool platform. But what I would say is, Two years ago, I didn't I didn't exist on Twitter. I didn't really start engaging with Twitter until 2020. And then that engagement, now Twitter has a, a lot of my mind share and a lot of my daily engagement. So who's suffered? You know, video has suffered as a result of that. Maybe Instagram has suffered some as a result of my engagement on Twitter. The thing is, what if something else comes out tomorrow that's better than Twitter and Bill Brewster is no longer on Twitter, but now he's on Reddit? Am I going to stay on Twitter? I'm going to follow Bill Brewster to Reddit. Oh, I appreciate now, that. I I'll follow you I don't too. Know what, well, thank you. I don't know if that's, <laughs> I'm just saying when you can aggregate a large audience really quickly, yeah. what that tells me is somebody else can also aggregate a large audience really quickly. And it makes mm-hmm. me really nervous. As an investor. Part of my issue with some of these SaaS companies, man. I can't own it because I don't know. And it, but by the way, if I did know, the model is so good that I would just be all in on it. Right? Yeah. The economics are phenomenal. So if you knew for sure, put it all on the table. And then by the way, don't even don't check stock prices. Just put it all on the table and, and run away. Well, you know what's interesting? I, I, no, no. This is perfect. And like, so Zoom, right? When you talk to people about Zoom, what do they say? They're like, one of the best things about Zoom is it just works. And one of the things yeah. that like Silicon Valley is so in love with, and I think for the right reason, is redic- reducing friction. But if it just works and reducing friction is the ethos, 
and you have a $140 billion market cap. I understand that enterprise software used to have high switching costs, but the difference is now it doesn't. Look at how yeah. quickly Zoom came in. And like, I, Ken's, I don't know why somebody can't replace it. I can tell you why we're not on Zoom right now. I think this is a much better audio platform and I want to yeah. do this podcast the right way. Is that going to matter? I don't know. And will Zoom iterate? Yes. But relying on that kind of invention over and over and over again, that's just a lot of money. I would have said the same thing like, you know, 10x ago. So I don't have yeah. standing to say this, but it just makes me nervous. No, this, is, this is an industry where you win by pulling a rabbit out of a hat, right? Yeah. And, and by the way, when it works, it's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. Yep. And the thing is, it's not that it's not great. I, I'm with it that it's amazing. What I don't know is who's going to pull the rabbit out of the hat and at what time. That yeah. I don't know. And and by the way, I don't. I bet you you could. You say, Mike, I'm going to give you a year. Go figure it out. You know, I'm not that smart. I don't think I'll be able to figure it out. By the way, I'm also very skeptical when somebody else tells me they have it figured out. Like, you know, if you did have it figured out, why are you investing? Why are you not just creating it? Right? Because yeah. that's the way. If you really want to get rich, create it. How much money did Zuck have when he created Facebook? Yeah. You know, you don't need capital. <laughs> just go do I it. No, man. Know? And then the other thing is, okay, so like you and I go out to do this. How are we going to do it? Like we're going to hire Gardner, right? Or Gartner. Like who in that industry has the incentive to raise their hand right now and say, hey guys, things are going a little bit nuts. And like, maybe we no. all just need to pump yeah, the brakes. Like everybody's incentive is to sell a bigger story. And I just hate no, those you're, you're- those. Enter the SPAC. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? <laughs> SPAC enters stage left and goes right to the center. <laughs> and I hate to be such a Luddite and like, you know, sort of like an old man about it, but that's just sort of how I think about I mean, everybody's no. making so much nobody money. Nobody likes the- nobody likes the guy who goes into the party and says, you know, you guys are wasted. Like, stop. Yeah, Everybody that's go right. home. Like, it's like, what a fucking loser. Yeah. But, I mean, I'm a perfect candidate for that because I am a loser and I drive a minivan. So I actually so am I, the dad who so am I. <laughs> in his minivan to the party when everybody's getting wasted and getting rich and telling me what an idiot I am. That's actually my problem with the market generally is, is so people say the debate is do valuations make sense, right? And that that's a big, I think the smart people are having that debate. And where I shake out on that debate is that Forgetting whether, and it always devolves into in my view on interest rates, right? And inflation. My, my favorite is Twitter's view of inflation and interest rates. I'm like, guys, uh, seriously, like I, I am smart enough to know I have no fucking idea. Yeah. Do not ask yeah. me about inflation. I would have told you in 2011 that we're going to see some inflation. Okay. That was almost 10 years ago. And it, I'm still waiting. I'm yeah. like waiting for Goodell. So anyway, so people have this conversation about valuations. I'm, I'm going to make it very simple. The people who are doing the best, in my opinion, are dopes. Just going to call it out there. Like the, the <laughs> dumbest guy in the room is making the most money. Now that's a sign. Okay. Yeah. It's a sign. And so in, in my mind, I'm like, and they're going to be like, I can't believe, you know, you said I was a dope. You're a dope. And you're right. I am a dope. I own it. But I, I'm saying like the, these people are not educated about the businesses they own. They're not educated about valuation. They're not educated about history. They're literally buying it and it's working. And in my mind, that is a sign that the party has gone on way too long. Yeah, I think that's I'm right. actually encouraged when I see this correction that we're having and maybe it'll end up being a crash and it depends on who you talk to, but the correction we're having in my mind, I'm like, this is great. Like what you want, you want some sobriety to enter the market. That's good for the market. It's good for people. I actually don't think it's great when everybody makes money on like speculating and they think it's not a good thing for them. It's not a good thing for society. It's because it's going to end the way it's always ended. It's going to end in tears. And if it doesn't, forward returns are pulled to today. 
I mean, you know, like and, that's and not I, good either. Then you got wealth inequality stuff. And... No, but yeah, push that out. So like, okay, so forward returns are pulled in. I, mean, I agree with that. Let's, but let's say that that's true. If you pulled the person who who made who's making fifty percent right now for the year, do they think they're going to make fifty percent next year? Yes. I bet you the answer is they do yes. think that, right? Yes. So what happens when it's the other when it doesn't go that way? I know. Do they man. just say, "Well, I uh, made my fifty percent"? What I do they do? Wait. They fucking sell. It's going to be when awesome. They, sell, they all sell, and so then the problem becomes, Bill, where are you a buyer? And just pick one. Like, where are you a buyer of Nike? Where are you like, you know, I'm going to buy that stock. I don't know. I'll tell you what. I'll I'll give you a price. I give you one that I I did Chipotle and I think that I'd buy Chipotle like 40% from here. As in like 60% down. I think I'd be like, all right, I could do Chipotle. Now, I understand why people are like, all right, that's stupid. You don't get it. But also look at what their stores have done since the Listeria problem. Like, it actually is not as... I understand they opened units. I get unit economics. I mean, I I do... I haven't done the most detailed models, so somebody might be, you know, beating me in that game. But like, oh man, you need a lot to go right, and you're selling burritos. Yeah, I mean, you could take that same exact conversation and you could push it on 15 different securities, yeah. and you would come up with the same answer. This probably, by the way, gets into another fun conversation, which is the influence of passive. I mean, when you ask, so, so you ask a guy, the, the real price setting mechanism, right, is the fundamental guy sitting here going, I'm buying it at this price, I'm selling it at this price, right? That's how the market is supposed to work. And that market is, was it Professor Plum, Michael, I forget his last yeah. name, he's got a really goes off on this. And it, it, the guy's brilliant, everybody should listen to him. It's it's really interesting when he talks about stuff. But what he's saying is, you know, ETFs are never sell. They are never sell, right? That's why partly why never sell is working. Why are they never sell? They can't sell because they've got inflows, right? They're yeah. not allowed to sell. Yeah, it works until the flows stop. Correct. And so then that's when I say is when you, when the flows stop, who's the new price setter, right? Me. Like I'm the pri- I'm the guy with liquidity ready to buy. So that's right. I'm and setting people, the price. And what's my price? Yeah. It's Mike's going to try to buy from you at three times cash flow. So <laughs> good luck. <laughs> yeah, we know. Hey, by the way, You're not going to like the terms. The, I, I hear the uh, the Monish Pabrai two times earnings seat is now open. So I, I'm nominating myself. That's right. I understand town. that it's now, it's now available. So I put myself on the throne. I, you know, again, I'm underwriting 10% and I don't want multiple expansion to enter the equation. Yeah. So if, if you're doing that, like, and by the way, I'm a guy who's like, I'm underwriting 10% and I, and I don't feel good about my ability to predict duration more than three, but certainly more than five years out. So if I'm not seeing that picture, it isn't going to be attractive to me. So now go take all of your companies and say, where's Mike a buyer? If I really understand it and I love the business, like Beast is a classic example, you know, tell me when it, when it's five years away from being 10 times earnings and I'll basically, then I'll say that that's my price, you yeah. know, that, and I'll probably be pretty reasonably conservative. I'll just kind of straight line what they're, what they're doing now. And by the way, that's a lot lower. I mean, that, that's not, you know, in March, uh, I was doing a little bit of this, but I, you had to do it some through writing puts because you, you couldn't really get there. The stocks didn't get quite that low, but in, in March, I mean, you know, it's like, where, where do you want to buy Visa? Where do you want to buy UNP? Where do you want to buy Berkshire? It's like, it's, it's easy. 50 cents on the dollar. Boom. Just 50 cents on a panic. I've got cash. You don't. 50 cents on the dollar. That's my buying price. And the answer is, I'm worried people doing what they're doing. It feels great until you lose a lot of money. And then and then it's like, you know, I mean, my God, my mom, Bill, the 90s, my mom, she was speculating on internet stocks. No idea what she owned. All of them went to zero. Now, I'm not saying that's where we are now. I'm just saying, like, she thought she Dude. could be a day trader. She thought she should make money. And at the answer, now she won't touch stocks. I'll tell you where I we are. I manage all of her for it. My wife's friends are kicking the shit out of me, and I'm having a pretty good year. 
I think I need to like go back and really do a true accounting of why I am where I am. Some of it is increasing my beta exposure, but after taxes and this, I don't sell securities again, it's not audited, whatever, but like I'm up like roughly 300 basis points against the index. And right. as somebody that came in owning banks and airlines, I'm pretty damn proud of the yeah. job that I yeah, did take this a, year. Take a victory lap. Take a I, victory lap. You know, it's funny, man, but I feel like a bigger fraud than I ever have, which probably yeah. means that I understand how hard this game is and I never really That's appreciated right. it before. But man, like my wife's friends are buying like, oh, I Teladoc, you know, in, in March. Oh. And, you know, I mean, good for them, but also... Man, it's just such first order thoughts like, oh, we should buy the e-commerce learning or the e-learning stock or whatever. Like my my wife's friend in uh, Central America bought that and the thing ripped. And it's like just all this stuff. And I don't know. I'm not sure how much of this is TAM being bigger versus pulling forward demand. If we're all trading on terminal value, pulling forward the demand shouldn't actually matter if rates are that low. But I think it's just safety. I think people like owning this shit right now. That's at the foundation yeah. of what it is i mean again it, to me it, it goes no farther than the people who are making the most money have the least idea what they're doing and that that to me is that should scare people we shouldn't look at that and go oh that's that's what should be happening we should look at that and say the people who are most wasted are having the best time and yeah. that, that's not good right your wife's friend in central america shouldn't be killing it right now that's not what should be happening we're in a global pandemic we've got unemployment at huge rate. like interest rates are zero not because the world is great it's because things are terrible yeah that's it shouldn't be happening that people should be putting heavy heavy risk on and getting rewarded for it but they are yeah and that, in my mind you don't need any other argument than than that it's you're in full-on speculation mode and you know what's crazy about how you just said that and it's so true is you said people shouldn't be putting heavy, heavy risk on. And what people don't understand is the higher the price goes, the longer your duration risk is and the more risk you're taking today that your thesis doesn't play out. But the problem is like the perception of the business, like the reason the price is high is because the business is perceived to be so stable. But that perception actually creates the risk that people aren't seeing, right? Right. So it's like you're going to sleep all the way into getting killed. Now, whether or not you want to go to QVC is sort of a totally different, you know, <laughs> debate. Like maybe Mike and I are morons, but I, we do see the world we in a similar are way. Morons, by yeah, way. that's fair. Are we, that's are we wrong fair. about this? Is a whole different question. That's yes, right. We're yeah. Definitely idiots. It's you're right. I mean, the, uh, the way what you just said has been said less eloquently than you put it, but it's it's been put as you know the bull markets always sow the seeds of their eventual demise. Yeah. That's what happens, right? And it's it's people climbing the the risk curve like that creates problems. It's excess that creates problems. And by the way, it's not just problems in the markets, which it does create problems in the markets that people see, but it also creates weird incentives inside of businesses. So if you're a business today and you realize profitability does not matter, right? So if I'm a CEO and I'm like I'm a part of a, a transportation 2.0 business, that's like a Nikola spinoff or whatever. For me, I don't have to have profits. What I have to have is TAM and I have to have growth. That's yep. what people are going to pay me for, right? And, it, and by the way, it's it's the human condition is to go out and better yourself. It's an important condition. It's why capitalism works, but it goes. it's easy to take that to extremes. And I think, and again, that's why I mentioned the SPACs. Like I, that's what's happening is the SPAC incentive is to go out and swing really, really big. That doesn't just permeate financial markets. That actually goes inside of companies. Companies are saying, no, the mandate isn't to make money. The yep. mandate is to sell. That's right. Sell, 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 sell. And to grow and, like crazy. Yeah, and grow like crazy and like, let's go make some. And by the way, again, it gets back to like, if that's the mandate inside of some companies, 
then how on earth are you going to get 40% ROICs on these businesses? Yes, you've seen historically, but you got CEOs out there like, no, you got a new project. You think the TAM is big? Invest. You know, it's like, yeah. that's not, all of those aren't going to work. It's yeah. just not, that's not, that's what, you know, I put a post up was like, you know, portfolio managers don't have common sense. To me, it's just common fucking sense. Like, it's not all going to work. Who has ever done anything that's always worked? Show me the one guy, because I have not seen that person. So. I'm getting no, it's true, man. And then the other up. the other narrative that I hear that I think is there is truth to it. But like in every bad idea is built like every really bad idea is built on grains of truth. This narrative of like there's reflexivity in the share price. So the share price goes higher. So you get better people. So the share price goes higher and yada, yada, yada. OK, I right. get it. That works. It doesn't work when your new crop of hires are getting stocks at 50 times sales and then the share price starts to yeah. go down and then they say, fuck this company. It's out of its best, yeah. you know, day like that can work the other way, too. Yeah, well, it, it absolutely will. And the higher the price goes, the higher the probability that it stops working yeah. by definition, unless well, you think these things can compound to infinity. And I'm not I understand that some of them will like I get it. The best companies of tomorrow I, will come out of the basket, but. Ooh. I think uh, no. I'm I'm actually gonna I'm gonna go out on a limb here, and I'm gonna say that SaaS will be 200 percent of global GDP within 10 years. There you That's go. What I think. I like you it. heard it here first. You heard it here first. It's gonna it's gonna do it. Everybody's it should trade at a higher valuation. I get money it. But... Sure. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, I, I, what you're saying is true. It, it's hard. I've seen it once, and it was it's brutal. But what ends up when when things get tough, you know, it, it just it affects an organization. It doesn't just affect the market. It affects yeah. the organization. And, and I would say, you know, to the point about stock options, actually, in this case, it gets really easy for a manager, for a board. You have so many securities that are issued that you can then, you know, pay out to your employees. If the strike, let's say, you know, to use, you know, apparently I'm using Microsoft, so we didn't go, I don't mean to, I don't own it. It's just me being, it's my sour grapes. But if you use Microsoft's example, and stock's what, 200, you issued stock to your employees at 200, stock goes to 100, and stays there. Like the board isn't going to let employees leave. The, yeah, the you reprice them. Yeah, so the minority yeah. shareholders and, and, are screwed. And you think about that, you're like, oh, okay, well that's good because I'm going to keep. Yeah, but it dilutes you. Like, yeah, that's right. Remember my conversation about how I had to go raise 150 million dollars, you know, <laughs> two dollars share. Like it's not a good thing. Like you shouldn't. But that's what will happen. And and it's, by the way, it's what should happen. I mean, Microsoft's fiduciary duties keep the business going for its owners. It's not going to let its best people leave, and it shouldn't. But you just have to kind of know, like, yeah, it's, it, it works really well on the way up and it hurts really badly on the way down. I think that the thing that I can't, I just can't get past and I, they can't all be winners. Yeah. They just can't. Yeah. It's not possible. So like there will be pain, you know, and then the question is, is it going to be that you'll make enough returns in your winners from here to offset the pain? I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. That's the bulk of me on this podcast is me walking you through all the things I don't know. And that's one well, of the dude, things I, I just don't. I appreciate you doing it. I think we're going to wrap this one up, but I hope you come back. And I'm really grateful for you for being the first guest and are grateful oh, to man. you. And Boy, I hope we started this podcast off right. I hope everybody once again remembers it's not investment advice. This is Brewster's <laughs> Billions, where we turn billions into thousands. Yeah. If, you want, <laughs> if you want to know what not to buy... Please go follow me on Twitter. You can see all of my uh, portfolio every month. You can get some good short candidates. It's going to be a very, very good short list for you. Yeah, I had a lot of fun with you as always. I, I hope this is being uh, entertaining. I hope we started your podcast off on a good note. Dude, I hope I recorded it. <laughs> I, I'm almost certain I did. <laughs> no, I can't. Right, no problem. Let's just do it again on Monday. Let's just do it again on Monday. We, we saw the countdown, so I think we'll be good. Oh, uh, that's good. All right, my man. Take care of yourself. Thank you for joining me. Yeah, thanks, man. Enjoyed it. 
Oh, <laughs> 